It's time to get away in a new Hyundai vehicle during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event at Woodhouse Hyundai. The Hyundai lineup of sedans and SUVs has the capability you need and technology and features you want, like the all-new 2023 Hyundai Palisade and Hyundai Tucson. This holiday season, get into a vehicle that will give you confidence with Hyundai Owner Assurance, America's best 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. Visit us online at WoodhouseHyundaiOfOmaha.com. All right, it's finally here. Ed Calderon is on the Sean Ryan Show. And yes, we've read all 2,282 emails requesting why the hell has Ed's episode not been released yet. But before I give it to you, just a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Vigilance Elite. That's me. Head over to VigilanceElite.com, hit the training tab. We have over 100 videos of tactical training and prepping shit too, where we teach everything from how to politely remove somebody out of your way who might be creating some issues, to if you're just that guy or lady who's looking to get proficient with a firearm and just learn the basics to protect your family. We have that on there. And while you're at VigilanceElite.com, head over to the store, buy yourself a bag of gummy bears and whatever else is in there. Now enjoy the show. Think about this. The largest, fastest growing cartel in Mexico was the new generation cartel grew exponentially in influence and power, not just in Mexico, but in the US during the COVID epidemic. One of their biggest money makers uh, outside of drugs is trafficking, human trafficking of all kinds. We live in a country where people are talking about reparations for slavery when there's actual slavery still. Yeah in this country during training they would get a dog that they would you know take care of for a few weeks they would sleep with it feed it, and all this type of stuff name it and then they would have to kill it and eat it why is china's interest in mexico so becoming so strong uh it's your achilles heel as a country sinaloa cartel runs a lot of their distribution with some of the local black gangs in places like chicago so we use them by proxy i was covered in blood my clothing was covered in blood my sneakers, my socks, feeling my toes. Welcome back to the Sean Ryan Show. This is episode 007. To kick things off, I want to say thank you to all the patrons out there. We have an overwhelming response on Patreon, which is supporting the show. And some news with that. We will be taking two volunteers from our tier three group, and I'm going to put them through a mindset challenge. So if you're on tier three, maybe you'll get picked. Two volunteers we're looking at hopefully mid-December. Moving on from that, thank you to everyone who left us an iTunes review. If you can't support us on Patreon, please at least take one moment, go to iTunes, 
leave us a review. That really helps us with the show. With that being said, hit the like button, leave a comment, and it's time to introduce our next guest, 007. 007 is a Mexican-American immigrant who did it the right way. He immigrated to the United States to evade the Mexican drug cartel. He is considered an expert in the space of narco trafficking and Mexican drug cartels. He's a real world MacGyver. He is TSA's worst fucking nightmare. He's seen it all and been face to face with the cartels in the most real, vivid, dangerous ways possible. Ladies and gentlemen, please allow me to present Senor Ed Calderon. Well, Ed, I am fucking super excited that you're here, man. Um, we've been trying to get this going for several months now and uh, finally, finally hit a date that works for both of us. But um, you are like the current narco expert and uh and americans i think everybody but americans are completely infatuated and interested in in that subject matter and um there's so many shows out and documentaries and it's been like that for a long time and uh to include myself <clears throat> so i can't wait to you know dive into some of that stuff and um me personally, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but I lived in Colombia for almost almost five years, and uh, and uh, was addicted to cocaine down there, and and uh, kind of immersed myself in that narco culture because I was so I got more addicted to the rush of being around it uh, than I was the actual drug, and. Um, and uh, I'd kind of like to, you know, compare notes to some of the stuff that you've seen and some of the stuff that I've experienced uh, and uh, on a low level and um, being around that kind of shit. And uh, so anyways, I'm super fucking pumped you're here, man. I'm excited to be here, man. So, yeah. But uh, I always start everything out with a gift. Okay. So. First off, always here if it's ticking I always drop the cell phone far away from it right on the radio <laughs> yeah that's what they do right that's how you know what somebody is oh thank you it's like a yeah it's that's cool thank you for that yeah you're welcome oh yeah some that, gummy bears all of it all about that right there yeah. thank you for that man you're welcome. thank you feel free to dig in that's pretty heavy I wonder what that may be Oh, look at that. Look at that thing right there. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder what this fits. It might happen to fit that right there. <laughs> but uh, I listen, I did a ton of research on you, and uh, you have this thing for golden guns. Well, so. I mean, it's. I think it's a Mexican to me. Some, some, for some reason, I think it's the Aztec and a little bit of the Spaniard mixed into there. 
the first enhanced interrogation in in the in the American continent was done by the Spaniards burning the feet of Moctezuma so he could so they could you know Moctezuma could admit where the gold was hidden. No shit. So I think uh, I think it's uh, probably it stems back to that uh, gold lust. You know, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. That is a that's an amazing piece right there. Yeah. Well. Uh... So yeah, that goes to a 50 cal Desert Eagle gold-plated. And uh, so I figure, you know, the first break we take, I haven't broken that thing in yet. So uh, we'll jut out back and yeah. blow some shit up and, uh, you know, see what she's made of. But uh, have you shot one of those? Yeah, I have. Uh, I actually, uh, I found two of those guns in a water barrel somewhere in Baja. That were traced back to the Fast and the Furious uh, debacle way back nice. when. Um, they're they're very sought after by some of the higher ups uh, on both sides of it. Uh, there was a uh, uh, um, army general that used to be part of the presidential protection detail that would carry around one of those things. No uh, shit. You know, they usually the officers in the army in Mexico don't get height requirements, so the guy was pretty short. You know. <laughs> So he carried one of those in a leather holster underneath his jacket, you know. Why? I don't know. He's trying to make up for something, probably. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> but it's, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting gun. Gold guns have a long history down there. Um, from Chalino Sanchez and his 38 uh, commander, uh, com commando gun to El Chapo's uh, famous uh, uh, pistol that had his uh, Ford's 100 uh, uh, top uh, 1000 number on there. Um, yeah. Is it like a status symbol? It, it is. Uh, that's how you know who's in charge or who's, uh, who are the higher ups in some of the cartel parties. You'll see those gold guns floating around. Um, it's kind of more of a Sinaloa thing. Like each of the regions in Mexico have their own thing. Um, I don't know exactly where that comes from, but, uh, there's a cult, uh, to a forbidden saint in Sinaloa, uh, Malverde, Jesus Malverde. Uh, it's a guy with a mustache and basically Mexican Robin Hood is, is the clearest way to kind of describe him. Uh, back in the turn of the century, he was a famous bandit that would rob the rich people coming in through the town. And I mean, he would the, the loot that he would get from them would be handed out to the townspeople. Uh, eventually, he you know, pushed his luck too much and he got shot in the leg. Um, he knew he was, he was almost going to be caught. The government put on a... Uh, 10 gold coin a reward for his capture. And uh, he told one of his best friends, according to the legend, he told one of his best friends to turn him in and get the money and disperse it to the townspeople. Um, so he was hung from a tree, and the order was not to bury him, to leave him there to rot. No shit. Eventually, uh, somebody in the town prayed to him because when he was alive, he would help out the townspeople with money and whatever. Uh, one of the townspeople prayed to him, uh, said, you helped me in life, now help me in death, and I'll, and I'll make sure to bury you. And uh, that was his first miracle. Uh, he fell down from the tree, and each of the townspeople, uh, instead of burying him, they just put a rock over his body. Eventually, it's a pile of rocks there, which later hmm. on turned into his grave, and later on turned into a shrine. So the whole gold thing is kind of related. I think it's probably related to that uh, 10 piece of gold. Um, um, 
reward that was uh, set up for him. So it's an interesting kind of a probable link to the whole gold fascination, how some of these things are used as status symbols. Damn, that's interesting. Well, Ed, you're number uh, 007. So it's a pretty big episode. Nobody read too much into that, though. Yeah, right. (laughs) But uh, so you consider yourself a non-permissive environment specialist. Yeah. And uh, you run an Instagram page, Ed's Manifesto, and uh, you teach courses on, you know, how to blend in, how to survive, um, how to escape and evade. And uh, it's it uh, after talking with you a little bit, it seems kind of like uh, a hodgepodge class full of 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 skills that are um, you seem to be very resourceful. And uh, and uh, I think that is fascinating. I actually wanted to go to your course in Cincinnati. Yeah. That was when we were going to try to do this first, and yeah. I didn't do it because I needed to prepare for this. Yeah. But I do want to go to one of your courses and get that experience. Uh, I mean, it's it's hood rat shit. That's yeah. What it is. I mean, I wish I could call it something cool, like field craft or or trade craft or something like that. But it's realistically, it's me going and doing a class and recounting the experiences and the conversations of all the people that I've kind of had to meet, talk to converse with and learn from during my whole experience uh, in Mexico working for the government. Uh, interesting thing, actually, the the Ed's Manifesto tagline came from an NSW guy that I trained with. No shit. So I would always have a moleskin notebook that I would write down things in as far as like class notes. Yeah. Not a very common thing for Mexicans to do that, though. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, uh, I was in Coronado uh, training with uh, NCIS guys. Some of them were former team guys. Uh, they were doing a uh, combat medical uh, class for us. So, like, the first time I, I saw a tourniquet or the first time I ever trained how to pack a wound was there with some of those guys. Um, and uh, there's a, what are you writing in your little manifesto was the thing that he kept asking. No, I'm just writing some notes, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, just fucking with you. So that's where the tagline as manifesto actually came from. That's um, cool. Um, I, I've always made it a point to collect and take down notes and record and anything I see of interest, I would always kind of uh, collect um, from conversations with people that we would detain. Um, I never made the mistake of dehumanizing my enemy. I think that's a, that's a common mistake that I see a lot of people do. Uh, what I mean by dehumanizing the enemy, it's not about uh, celebrating him. It's not about emulating him. It's about learning from him. So example, 15 year old, um, Fernando, 15-year-old Fernando is the guy that just kid distributes cocaine to uh, cocaine and heroin to a lot of the people that uh, travel into one of the uh, the the Zona Rosas or the the tolerance zones in Tijuana. That's where all the um, um, prostitution takes place, right? mm-hmm. legal prostitution, allowed prostitution. Uh, we're on him for a while. We finally caught him, you know. Caught him slipping. He was buying a cell phone for his girlfriend, and that's where we got him. Handcuffed him, put him in the car. He got free of the handcuffs, ran. A few of our guys caught him, and a few of them wanted to beat him up. I said, calm down, grabbed him, took him back to the car, zip-tied him, and handcuffed him this time. 
and asked him, how did you get out of those? And he proceeded to show me, right? Yeah. Um, he used a, a small piece of metal from a, from a um, street sweeper, a street sweeper bristle. Um, and he would always carry a ma- like a red magnet or a magnet to pick some of those up, and he would always hide them on his person. And then he would grab the handcuff itself and flip it to the side so it looks like it's closed, but it's actually open. Those two tricks I learned from him I've been showing across the country to some high-level people and some low-level people, and they always get amazed by it. Yeah. And I always say I learned this from a 15-year-old kid. Well, I mean, you call it hood rat shit, but all it is is fucking real shit that actually works that uh, people have come up with, and and you've documented it all and put it into you know your manifesto. How many different, uh, like roughly in an estimation, or maybe if you do have an exact number, but how many different types of these skills uh, do you I, have I, documented? I, I mean, I have... I have a lot of VHS tapes of some conversations I have with some of these people. Yeah. I have some, a lot of digital recordings of some of the conversations I have with some of these people. I have pictures and, and the moleskins uh, related to uh, hood rat fortifications on some uh, safe houses to, uh, you know, uh, steel water and steel doors meant to negate the use of an angle grinder or, or, or of a battering ram. Basically, the water reverberates the, the pressure on the steel. And I, I, all those notes and pictures and stuff like that. That's I gather. I have no idea how much I have, but I, 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 I don't. I don't hoard it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people hoard that stuff. I, I've shared some of that stuff pretty openly on my social media. Yeah. Um, and uh, every time I get a chance to train with or uh, go and advise in some in some capacity, um, uh, some unit, some group, some uh, group of people, like I got a. I got the opportunity to show some of the stuff that I know to some of this at the Secret Service Academy to some of those guys. Um, specifically, how to hide things that are non-ferrous and non-magnetic, and how to smuggle things through points of security. And it was surprising how some of the simpler things surprised them. How some of those were unknown. Um, but that's kind of the point behind most of the stuff that I do. I want to put this into the hands of people, even the public, the general public itself. People sometimes get afraid when I share something that to them was secret. Um, an example of this is the I, I shared a picture of a, of zip tie restraint, homemade zip tie restraint, with an angle cut in the inside of them. So when they would put them on, the angle cut in the zip tie would stab into your wrists. Now, that was pretty unknown to the general public, but it was widely used in Mexico by some production groups. Hmm. The reason they made that that way is that a lot of these guys, um, I actually got to see an open laptop and doing some site uh, exploitation stuff down in Mexico. And I got to see their browsing history, which was fascinating to me, you know, what what are these guys looking at? And uh, YouTube, uh, escape and evasion videos, people escaping from zip ties, doing the classic uh, bursting uh, method to escape from them. So they decided to put angles in them so that when you try to do that, you would hurt yourself and or basically commit suicide. Now, that is a product of evolution. They are evolving. They're changing the way they're doing things. Yeah. And you and, and we as people that share some of that stuff are better served educating the public about some of these things. Yeah. So they can see how deep the hole goes. 
and they can counter that uh, preparation that the bad guys have or the counter guys have to what we are going to plan to do to counteract that and if if we find ourselves in a situation like that that's a small example of it but uh things are evolving out there um people are people that have a lot of training in mexico like some of the people that i used to work with are now working for the cartel yeah um uh, things are shared online and immediately get distributed to every single terrorist network out there in the world and also most intelligence services as well so that stuff gets propagated and shared and it's a free-for-all when it comes to information yeah and so then think, new tactics evolve you know because of that but an example of hong kong protesters using lasers it all all it took was their action to, now they change the way people do things yeah so you know some of those lasers you can source on places like alibaba you know and you can modify them easily by some of the stuff you see on youtube so that's a quantum leap over how they weaponize basically focused light yeah and it's fascinating to see that how uh, how an idea spreads like a virus in a way um the same thing with all the criminal methodology that i kind of share and expose um they see something that is they get horrified and surprised by it oh ed why are you showing the criminals this no they already know it i'm showing the people that live safely in the confines of whatever community they are a part of that have never been exposed to this i'm no. sharing this to them so they can see how deep the well is right so they can keep their kids close so they can put a sign on the well that the well is deep um there's i get a lot of so a lot of the negativity that i get is usually based on the whole you shouldn't share this openly yeah um that, that there are things that i don't share openly and usually things that i've seen that are kind of reserved or kind of really i haven't seen that much out there but once i do i try and share some of those things so people can see what they are so you grew up in Tijuana, Mexico, and uh, you started your law enforcement career in 2004. Yeah. Um, and uh, doing my research, it sounded like you were actually, you were in med school, you wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. And, and it sounded like your law enforcement career was kind of something that you were doing just to get you by uh, while you were in med school. And then you go on to say that uh, it took a very different turn, and uh, yeah. So, you know, um, nine eleven. Where were you when nine eleven? What 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 did you do after nine eleven? Uh, I was in the military. Awesome. Uh, I, that was completely like beyond the scope of my. I didn't want to do anything weapons related. I didn't want to serve. I didn't want to do anything like that. 9-11 happened and it turned the economy into, it, turned, it put the economy in the toilet uh, along the border region, specifically in Tijuana, which lives off the border, right? Uh, border times went longer because of all the new security precautions and the border was actually closed for the first time in, in like in recent history was during 9-11. Uh, that affected my family's business and my own ability to kind of maintain myself. Um, and I couldn't afford to stay in medical school uh, so i had to look for options right uh saw an ad in the newspaper that they wanted young unmarried uh no kids uh, uh bilingual young men for government work um i thought it was going to be community policing or some sort of information analysis type thing and 
all of a sudden I was going through paramilitary training and getting my hair shaved off by a bunch of uh, Mexican gothic guys. And I didn't know what it was in for. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was this open door when we go in there. The, the academy that I went to was a regional academy. It was basically a refurbished prison. So they made this prison in, in, the, in, this, uh, in this hillside. And they discovered after they made it that there's a lot of fog there. So it didn't, it wasn't an optimal place to put a prison. Mm-hmm. But a police academy, you know, they can, they can get away with that. So it was not good enough to be a prison, but they turned it into a police academy, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, we were treated, uh, they, they told us at the start, uh, there was this colonel there. He said, we have two things for you, pan y verga, which is bread and dick. And guess what? Bread ran out two days ago, so all you're getting is dick, right? Uh, they had this open door policy there. You can just walk out if you wanted to. You wanted to quit. And they treated us like human refuse for about two months, two, three months. Basically, uh, while we were going through that, that the FBI background checks were being done, uh, polygraph exams, uh, background uh, financial checks. Uh, they were looking into our families. And a lot of people would get pulled out during the whole process. Uh, so just backtrack it real quick. So were you all, you were already being fed into uh, like almost an elite unit of the, of the, of the police force right from day one. Yeah. They, they were, they were training us up to do something and I didn't know exactly what that was, but I was getting an idea because of the, you know, type of people that were training us. Basically. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was going to be an analysis job, listening to phone calls, maybe translating stuff that I would hear somewhere in an office somewhere. And all of a sudden, I was getting handed a handed a ballistic vest, a Glock, and a uh, and a and a G three rifle. Just told to you know, go on. They would give us a badge, and then they would tell us, "Just don't put it on. This will get you killed if you see this badge." <laughs> um. So yeah, it was it was pretty uh, badly organized. Uh, the training was very low quality. I remember getting trained how to shoot a uh, Beretta 92FS pistol, a 99mm Beretta 92FS pistol. And I shot 20 rounds out of it while going through training, basic training there. Shit. And when I got out, I got a Glock inside of a case. And I've never seen a Glock before. So I was like looking at this thing, like, where's the safety? <laughs> like, where's the, you know, I was like trying to figure this out. Um. It was that that type of retard retarded low level training in and you know the the you make fun of the guys that get the AK forty seven shot around them to get them acquainted to combat. Yeah, I was one of the guys on the ground getting shot with that AK forty seven around them to get them acquainted to. All it gave me was bad hearing. And yeah, uh, that's a good way to make death and dumb people. Um, but that was that was what we had. That's what that's 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 what they had to give us right damn um that uh that lasted about a little bit over six months and then it was off to the races uh and stepping into uh a fledge the the beginnings of what turned into the drug war like the major parts of the drug war how bad was uh how bad was the how how bad were the cartels at that time they were pretty bad but it was it was it was the beginning of the modern fractioning, which turned into like the the worst parts of the drug war. Um, this was right before Felipe Calderon, uh, the, the 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 conservative to the right president, 
basically declared open warfare on the cartels. This was a president before him was in power. He was starting to uh, push for some of these policies. Uh, and all of a sudden we had 2006 rolling around and it kicked off. It was like there was bad stuff and violence happening. Uh, but he basically militarized and put all every basically gave a white uh, 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 a white card to governors across the country to do whatever they had to do to go after the cartels. Um, oh, shit. So that's when things really got interesting. Um, there was a lot of fractioning going on with high level cartel guys being grabbed and the one cartel turning into two uh, allegiances being tested around the country and and uh, kind of the violence uh, being orchestrated by cartel on cartel and also government on government. So you would run into a town where the state police was on the payroll of one cartel. The local municipal police was on the payroll of the other cartel. And the local uh, military barracks were on on the payroll of another cartel. So yeah. it was you trust no one, uh, like the smoking man and the X man and the X Files used to say. That's what that's part of the first lessons that I got was trust no one. Damn. When uh, when Calderon took over in in two thousand six, uh, from the research I did, uh, it sounded like that was like a fucking switch got flipped. Yeah. And uh, I read that they estimate over 250,000 uh, people have been murdered. Uh, the, the, those are those are on. official numbers. So it's probably more. Yeah. Also, they don't count the people that went missing. Yeah. Uh, body disposal turned into an industrial effort in places like uh, uh, Tijuana, where the famous stewmaker uh, was, uh, was active. Uh, so what happened is that the Felipe Calderon basically federalized the efforts against uh, drugs and he put the military into the fight. And he also took uh, certain elements of the police forces and embedded them with the military, which was some of the stuff that I did uh, because we had arresting powers and they didn't. And also we knew our way around some of the places where they were operating. Um, so one of the, one of the places where I worked was in Baja and um I got to see the stew maker and actually I actually got to, to meet him and talk to him. Um the stew maker uh was in, in it was employed by the Sino, by an elements of the Sinaloa cartel. He used to actually work for the Tijuana, the Ariano Felix cartel. Uh but he there was a split that happened and he went over to the Sinaloa side. He said that he was trained how to get rid of bodies by Israeli specialists that the cartels brought in to train them. Right? Um and that was like suspect when I heard it. It sounds like something that's kind of made up. Uh, but then I saw some elements of actual experience and craft in what he was doing. Um, so he basically made caustic soda to get rid of the bodies with a lot of stuff you can buy on uh, you can buy at any hardware store. Uh, didn't didn't uh, didn't get any, a lot of attention because he was uh, he would always dress like an albañil, like a worker, like a construction worker. Um, he would you know, make his caustic mixture, put a body in there without any clothing on. Uh, he would cut grid patterns on some of the tattoos and, and the face to get rid of that first. And he, he would dump that into a sand grater and get some of the solid pieces and put it in the next batch. Hmm. That's a sign of craft. Somebody, no. somebody showed him that. Uh, so, you know, it makes me wonder. Um, 
the amount the amount of people that he got rid of as far as the bodies go is unknown you know there's different estimates out there i don't know like nobody knows but a whole generation of young people disappear in that uh in that city yeah what uh what what are some of the estimations Five thousand. Five thousand fucking people. That's one of the numbers that I heard. One but guy I, got rid of five thousand bodies. Yeah, he never murdered anybody though. He said he, he would. They would just get. He would just get bodies brought in. In a scene out of uh, out of uh, Auschwitz, uh, where he was found, there was a room full of shoes and clothing. That was creepy as hell to see. Yeah. Uh, all those shoes and clothing belonged to somebody, and uh, they just made that these bodies appear. Um, one time I was, uh, working with one of the older guys. So there's a generation of uh, guys that were on when I, when I went in that didn't go through some of the security protocols that I went through. So some of them were more on the shady side than others. There is no such thing as not being, uh, that being a cop in Mexico and not being shady somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Even I was kind of shady, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but one of the older guys, um, I was, uh, we saw this, there was this pedestrian bridge and they had three bodies hanging from it, right? And I stood there and I thought, that's horrible. That's a horrible, cruel thing to do. And all the older guy said, the body's a gift. Should be thankful for it. And I didn't really, I didn't kind of get what he meant. So I said, what do you mean, man? That's horrible. No, I mean, at least the family's going to get a body to bury and cry over. The body's a gift. Damn. So that in a place where that hanging a body from a bridge is a sign of kindness. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a different kind of hell. That uh that that can put some shit into perspective. Fuck man. How long uh how long after your how long into your career do your law enforcement career uh in Tijuana did did it take for it to become real? Where, where I mean, you're as soon like, as I this got isn't out, a fucking game. As soon as I got out, probably the second day on the job, uh, we we were uh, we were kind of spread out uh, uh, in the uh, in 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 Baja State, and uh, I got to see immediately the 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 uh, no fucks given by the cartels. Mm-hmm. So I remember me and probably eight other guys moving through downtown Tijuana in uh, full kit, uh, driving around in some marked vehicles and um, getting the order to stop from the lead car that was in front of us. And we put and we parked aside and everybody ran out of the cars and adopted defensive positions. And uh, a convoy of probably I'd say probably somewhere in 15 vehicles just passed right next to us. All of them, uh, a few of them armored, uh, all of them with AK-47s. Some of them had federal police uniforms. Some of them had army uniforms. Uh, we didn't know who they were. We are getting calls from the uh, from the 911 service they have down there from the municipal police that, that, that they, were co- they were municipal cops, but they clearly weren't municipal yeah. cops. So we just got in a you know Mexican standoff with them. Didn't nobody shot around, but they just passed by us. We called for for support uh, from the local police, and and nobody showed up. So how many of you guys were there? Probably nine. Nine. Nine guys. What's that? Two cars. That's two cars. Yeah. 
And they had 15 fucking vehicles. Yeah. So we, that's when I realized that there's no winning here. Not, not like this. Fuck, man. There's no winning. Not like this. And, um, why do you think there were no shots fired? They didn't feel threatened by us. They didn't have any fear. So they just passed by and they actually went to a local little restaurant there and adapted positions around it, had dinner, and then went back to their cars and left. Damn. No support came on our end. So it's one of those, that's when you realize how fucked you are and how no support and how there's just no backing there. This was before the Felipe Calderon administration. Um, slowly but surely, things changed. We started getting more support, started getting more vehicles, more people coming in. Uh, we started working directly with the military and directly with some federal um, uh, operational uh, police forces. Uh, eventually getting fear put into the, the opponent, the enemy, right? the cartel guys. Uh, it, took, it took some time. At the start of it, it was just hopeless. Just hopeless. Yeah. Uh, going through the motions. Um, a few, I think it took about a year into it that a few of my friends were killed. Uh, they used to they used to rent out hotels for us to stay in. And uh, we had this buddy system going on. So if you wanted to go outside, you had to have one of your one of your buddy system, right? But you would have to inform that you were going out. They didn't inform. They went to the store. They thought it was easy. So they just crossed the street, went to this uh, convenience store. Uh, and they got picked up by uh, uh, some cartel guys dressed as federal agents. They had the blue uniforms and everything with the uh, patches, everything, like down to every detail. Uh, and they were, you know, they were taken. They were zip dyed um, and put into a van. They were found 24 hours later. One of them had his ID screwed to his forehead. Uh, they were, were being hunted. Yeah. You know, that's, that's when like paranoia, um, less than a year. That's less than a year. And I, uh, I came out of there in a generation of 32 people and a lot of them are gone. Uh, but those were the first really close ones to me that I saw leave but just leave in a horrible way um they're all young you know like i knew i knew the, like i just been to a to a party with the girl and i met the girlfriend of one of them and it was a it was a thing that told them get don't don't marry don't get girlfriends because <laughs> you don't want to leave widows yeah interest uh just for perspective it's uh it's a thing to be ashamed of or to hide if your profession is a cop, or at least it was back then. Damn. So because we're not the, depending on where you were, cops are, you know, despised. Yeah. Um, so what, what would a typical day look like? What was your mission? Uh, uh, it depend on the time of my career, like uh, some of the harder, hardcore stuff. I was attached to a, uh, a director. Uh, by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Izaola, uh, for 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 the first uh, part of his uh, administration as directing us, he's the one that really changed things. Like he was our, uh, he was the guy. You know, um, I always equate him to a, a General Mathis type individual. Um, 
He was a lieutenant colonel that uh, came out of the War College in Mexico, uh, career officer, um, went through a bunch of uh, experience and eventually le uh, landed at, in a directorship out of the group that I worked for. He led from the front. You know, I didn't have any any specialty training uh, protecting somebody, but I got assigned to his uh, security detail at the start of his uh at the start of his uh, turn as a director. And I went out patrolling with him in Tijuana. That was probably one of the most uh, life-changing, altering experiences. Um, there's this guy, you see this guy, he refused to wear a a, um, a, a, lanyard, uh, um, a strap on his rifle so he'd carry his AR in his hand, you know, like a cowboy. Nice. Um, He'd walk out of these vehicles and every now and then would stop a high-level cartel guy and he would walk up to him and like, I'm here now, I'm in charge. So you better, you know, you better get your shit together because I'm coming after you. He would have these meetings with the whole group and just say, uh, I want villains, I want I want to fight fire with fire. Uh, if you're here for romantic reasons, just get the fuck out of the room. Uh, I want bodies, not detainees. Did you like working for him? I mean, I think uh, he treated us like dog shit, but we felt the support. Yeah. You know? he, he was a very much a villain. He's got your fucking back. He was very much a villain, but he was our villain. Yeah. That's the feeling we got. The loyalty. For that, uh, for that uh, we would always see him in the front lines. Uh, we did this uh, raid on his compound in Baja. Where they, uh, guns, drugs, everything was going on. Stolen vehicles, uh, money, uh, falsification. They were falsifying bills. It was insane compound we found out there. Um, and uh, they actually had a line in there as well, which is, that's an interesting part of the story. Uh, but when we went there, all of us basically approached it from different sides. And I remember approaching it from the beach and we were kind of walking towards this uh, compound that had a, base, a bunch of bungalows there. Uh, some of the bungalows were actually rented out and some American families were staying there. Unbeknownst to them, there was all this stuff yeah. going on around them. Uh, so um, I remember being very low to the ground and hearing some rounds go off and stuff like that. And just, just being very low, kind of approaching this place and just looking to my sides and seeing this this uh, superhero character in the form of Lieutenant Colonel Lazola just standing there. He just said, the rounds are coming from over there. <laughs> like, uh, you can't make this shit up. Um, uh, we we hit this place and, you know, he was with us throughout. It's not, he didn't, you know, he didn't hide somewhere or go to the background. And he was with us for all of it, you know. It's a, probably one of the longest... Uh, Longest days as far as kicking doors and then I had in my life. There's a bunch of bungalows. Each time we would hit one, there was people and there was weird things and there were guns, whatever. We hit all these bungalows. At the end of it, there was this weird door, like a steel door with a refrigerator with a bunch of uh, suckling, frozen suckling pigs in it. I was like, what's going on here, right? I remember I had my MP5 with a light on it. One of the... One of the uh, the stream light ones, the first ones, the yellowish light. You yeah. remember those? I don't know how we live with that stuff. And turn out that yellowish light, you know, with these really expensive batteries to get down there. Um, 
open the steel door and just go in there. And in the corner, like something out of a movie, this furry object just stood and turned around. I could see its lights, its eyes light up. The light was a lion. They had a, they had a lion shit. in the room. They had a pet lion because cartels. Ooh. They did one of those. And you got a fucking MP5. <laughs> I have an MP5. And, and, and shit. I didn't, I didn't, in my mind, I'm I'm not, one of the last things I thought about was shooting it. Yeah. I just wanted to get out of the room. That yeah. was my whole thing. Ran out of the room, closed the door. Cierrele, 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 cierrele. It's like, and then we had to, the whole thing about now, what do we do with this lion? Right? Um, Lieutenant Colonel lays all that walks in. I was like, what's in there? It's a lion. Okay. Don't open the door. Uh, we won't. <laughs> right? Um, calm, collected guy. I mean, some of the things that we experienced were completely out of this world. I never saw him bat an eye. Right? Um, yeah, that was, that was, I think he was instrumental in, in turning the fear on the side of them. Yeah. He had about eight or nine assassination attempts on him during his time uh, working down there. Shit. Uh, the last one took a, took the took uh, the use of his legs. Uh, they shot him in the back. Um, he's confined to a wheelchair now, but he's still he's still very much a dangerous person. Uh, he's still very much a motivated guy. He's, he's uh, made a run for uh, uh, for office uh, for the mayor of Tijuana a few times. Actually, I've supported him uh, during these runs, even out. You know. Yeah. Uh, he's one of those. He's one of those guys that never acknowledges people. You know, he's like one of those leaders that any small hint of a pat on the back is just beyond him. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he shared when I was uh when I was uh started getting a bit more notoriety, he shared something of mine on his social media. I said, "Oh, this man used to this 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 one of the guys that I used to work with. You should listen to him. He's talking about some of the work we did." Yeah. And I was like a insanely surreal yeah uh, just acknowledgement of my existence that felt awesome wow that was the beyond awesome and then you know and then i then i went uh over there and talked to him and he humbled me back again what's your name again <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah when you guys were doing when you guys were conducting these raids uh like this one that you were just talking about for example how many guys are with you and how many guys uh we're on the cartel side. I mean, uh, some, usually somewhere in the numbering in the, in the 30s or 50s on our side, if it was a high level thing, and somewhere around 50 and 100 on the cartel side, depending on where we were and what we were doing. There were a lot of times we were outnumbered, completely outnumbered, yeah. surrounded. We had to basically adapt a defensive position and just yeah. wait it out uh, until until the cavalry came in. Usually in the form of the in the army or the the Marines, depending on where we were. Okay, so you guys would take a target down and then, and then basically hand it over to a yeah, uh, yeah. less specialized unit. Yeah, so lot, we one. would find things that were beyond the scope of our ability to guard or keep or move, like a fucking lion. <laughs> yeah, like a lion or like a lot of cocaine or a lot of weed or a lot of guns and a lot of people, and then we'd call in the military, and the military would come in and grab it. And there was back then there was a, pol a political thing. So the military, they want the, they wanted the people to get more confidence in the ability of the military to combat, that the military was combating some of this stuff. 
The thing is that the military was not equipped to combat some of this stuff. Mm. Uh, they didn't. They weren't. Uh, they weren't a viable police force, but they wanted to gain more confidence. So a lot of the jobs that we would get, we would find, would say, "Hey, we found all this stuff. Let the military, you know, take it." Yeah, that was a lot of that going on back then, and there was a lot of corruption as well, um, at high levels. Uh, recently, the uh, the head of the National Security uh, Administration or police force in Mexico, under the Calderon administration, was arrested for cartel ties. So, I mean, again, trust no one. Yeah, trust no one. Uh, so, thinking back on that, we we would, uh, you know, sometimes we would we would go after certain things and they, we would be called off. So that, that makes you think. Yeah. You know, right. Uh, but I was just a cog in the machine. You know, boots on the ground. Yeah. That's all I was. How often were you guys going on raids? Was it every night? Every was night. Was it twice a night? Every was night. It... Every night we would get something of interest and. Off we went, or we get anonymous reports of armed people somewhere or whatever, and uh, it was basically a race to see who get the, who could get there first, or it was a race to see what we could find first, right? So um, it was a nightly thing. A bunch of the people that I used to work with were all addicted to the same thing, yeah. adrenaline. Um, they they all wanted to be in it. They all wanted to be. You know, some people were coming off a shift. And they they were they would hear something was going on and just flip that back on. Yeah. Um, there's something to be said about the people you meet and you relate and with uh, under some of these conditions. There's a weird bond that happens to, with people. So we took everything personally that would happen to each of us. So things like having um, I'm going off shift and you know, whatever happens, I'm fine. You know, people would rush in, even on their breaks. You know, but it was a nightly thing. We would get. Uh, specific things that we would go after specific people or we would jalar la hebra as they call him down there we would pull the string we'd find a guy with a cell phone and the cell phone had him with an AK gold AK on it on it and that would lead us to somebody else and yeah. that would lead us to a house and that would lead us to uh, uh, two water barrels buried with a bunch of guns from Fast and the Furious in his backyard and that would lead us to somebody else. And it was sometimes it, one one thing would turn into a couple of three nights of just raiding, hitting houses yeah. all at once. Was there always shots fired? Sometimes, a lot, a lot of times. I was I was in a few big ones. Uh, there's a famous one, La Cupula. It's like a, people can look this up. There's a lot of footage of that. Uh, La Cupula was basically. Uh, castle-like uh, structure house in Tijuana and had a giant dome on top of it. It looked like a mosque. Uh, there was a report of, of armed people inside of it. So responding units went there and they started getting fire from on top of that uh, cupola structure. So high vantage point, all of the advantages. Um, so they got pinned down. Uh, some of the some of the federal police showed up, and then we showed up. We had uh, G threes back then, so they were pretty good at shooting people from from that were hiding behind uh, bricks. Yeah. Uh, some of the other guys had ARs and stuff like that. So it was an interesting um, back and forth in that in, in that regard. Um, back then, the all of the police units showed up, like from the federal to the state to the local and finally the army showed up with a 50 cal 
And uh, this is the same fight. Yeah. How long did this go on? It probably took probably like four hours, maybe four, four hours, or five hours. And this is in the middle of Tijuana. There's a there's a there's a, a daycare center next to it. Jesus. So we're evacuating some of the kids out of the daycare center. Uh, this time we, I was uh, protecting a, a high-ranking politician, so we had access to armored suburbans. So we're bringing in the armored suburbans to see if we can evacuate some of these kids. Um, it was a shit show. Everybody was shooting. Nobody knew who I knew. Like, uh, some of the people who were showing up, there were cops were wearing civilian clothing, including us. So it was a shit show. Um, eventually it subsided and on the ins, uh, uh, opened up to some of the doors and the army, uh, broke in and opened some of the doors, uh, to this place and, uh, a, a fully uniformed municipal police officer stepped out. It's like, I jumped the wall from back then. Let's go through here. And like, all of us were like, that guy's probably part of that yeah. group over there. So he immediately got bagged. <laughs> um, and when they went in, um, a lot of the, uh, all of the, it was basically a place where they were keeping abducted people that they were ransoming out. And a lot of them got, you know, shot in the head. Uh, and some of the guys that were inside shooting out put zip ties on and handcuffs and pretended to be abducted. Yeah. Uh, I remember somebody commenting on the fact that the smell gave them away. You know, picked them up yeah. and they would smell freshly fresh, fresh you know, not, you know, not like somebody's been sleeping in the same clothing for months. Yeah, and also they didn't have any raw wrist with the restraints, so they immediately got bagged and tagged too. Bunch of them were cops. No shit. Yeah, police radios and uh, so we would use uh, sat uh, satellite radios, uh, Matra systems, um, and they had those there too. It was apparently encrypted and very secure, but they had them. When you were trying to evacuate, or when uh, you and your team was trying to evacuate the children out of the, out of the daycare, uh, is there like a mutual respect between the police and the cartel on sparing them, or there's not, there's uh, not. will they try to exploit that? And then, uh, like what a lot of um, what a lot of like what Al Qaeda will do is they will look for targets opportunity that are fucking easy. That will make headline news, yeah, and then uh, try to uh, twist it so that it makes it look like I mean, we there, did it. I mean, there's there's pictures online about that uh, firefight. You can see some of the uh, some of the some of the agents basically just two kids on on each hands just trying to extract them. Rounds were flying everywhere. Nobody yeah. was respecting anything. Uh, they they were in a fight for their lives. Were cornered, so you can. That was all they, they were up to. Um, you can see them trying to snipe specific things. Like the, we had the helicopter flying overhead, and you could see them trying to hit that thing <laughs> out of the sky. Um, yeah, I mean, there is, there is, they do definitely have elements of, you know, uh, hearts and minds going on within how they operate in some of these communities, and in some of the in some of the places that we went after them, they were. They were they were the the police element in the community. They were they were the guys that built the roads. They were the guys that built the church. They were the guys that would pay for the college educations of some of the kids there. They were the guys that built the school. Um, it, they were the guys. And I loved them. Yeah, and that's 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 true across Mexico. There's a few places like that in Mexico. Uh, 
I did a uh, I did a class in uh, Sinaloa a few years back at Culiacan, uh, the 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 center of the Sinaloa cartel, basically. Um, and I was driving through this road. It's a pretty rough road, and all of a sudden it turned into a nice road, very well lit, very well maintained. And somebody there told me this is the cartel built part of the road. So. In a place like that, you know, who is the governor? Governor there, you know, yeah, cartel guys, or, um, yeah, some of these communities that they built, uh, that they build around what they do are pretty insane. You know, kids, kids rolling into a gas station with a Lamborghini Murcielago, wearing sandals, gassing it up and then driving it up to who knows where in the hills. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, kids just running around with AK forty sevens in like in the middle of town. Um, guarding somebody that was high level. Uh, this is this is the, the that's why I call it the upside down. Things are flipped in some of these places. Yeah. How long? Um, how long were you in that in that element where you were doing raids on a nightly basis? Probably somewhere along, probably nine years. Nine years. Probably nine years of that. Nine fucking years. Nine years of that. That's like two thousand. What is that? Two thousand seven hundred something raids. I mean, I that's just, a fuck ton working. of raids. <laughs> well, that's when we when we uh, talked uh, last night at dinner. So I talked to you about how's your knees and how's your back because yeah. that's usually that's usually what goes. You know? How much mission planning goes into one of these raids? Is uh, it like we're fucking going? Yeah, we're going. We're going. We're figuring things out. Uh, we we got a we got pretty good at figuring out how things were built and how. Um, a lot of the a lot of the housing down there is pretty shitty. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of the econ economic housing is pretty like cut and paste basically. So we would know how things were built. Also, a lot of the shanty towns that we would work in were very flammable. Uh, some of them were built out of cardboard or just tarp, so you wouldn't know what you what you would get. Um, sometimes we would hit what apparently was a shanty town type house, and then would end up in a marble floored four-story house with um doberman pinchers that have pedigrees uh guarding the, the outside of it you know yeah so we would never know what we would get uh there's some some surveillance went into some of the work we did and we'd try and figure things out we tried to prepare as best we could for it um uh, but we just you know i remember just experience would, would make us gather things in what we would carry so i remember hitting this house once uh, clear door there, just went out to the door, started banging on it, then crowbarring it, angle grinder. Eventually, we ripped that thing off, and it was a wall behind it. It was a fake door. It was a fake front door. Shit. And we were like, slow clap, you know? Just, I mean, we had to. You had yeah. to applaud that. And uh, there's this secret door tunnel system thing on the back, and they nobody was in there when we got in there. Uh, the ingenuity basically was a back and forth ingenuity thing. Yeah. Um, we would, uh, we would, we would, uh, we would try and always figure out how we would get into some place or how we could get out of it. Also, um, you would go to some places and it wasn't just that house. It was also the house next door. It was also the house over there. It was also the kids on the bike over there had a smartphone that called you, that called any sort of activity in there. So, we had to do things like cut the water supply, the water uh, mains into some of these places that we couldn't flush things. Um, we would uh, have to figure out the ways of uh, 
hitting everything simultaneously. So we'd have to spread out. Communication was a big issue. Um, and also imagine going and hitting several houses in the same area at once. Crossfire's a bitch. Yeah. And there's just no way to kind of to, to kind of figure that out at times. So are most of these barrios uh are they is the entire neighborhood on the payroll? Some of them are, you know. Or if they're not on the payroll, they're related to them in some way, like blood related to some of the people working there. So it's in their best interest to call in, hey, there's yeah. a bunch of weird cars here or some people that are not from here moving in with guns heading your way. And not um, to mention they're supporting the whole fucking community. Sometimes, yeah. Uh, so, so again, it's it was a losing battle yeah. in a lot of ways. I mean, some of the success we had, the, the President Felipe Calderon recently wrote uh, kind of a biography on, on his uh, term, and he specifically mentions Baja as a victory for him. And it did, it was, you know, we calmed things down in that uh, part of the country. It was one of the only successes that 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 uh, his whole you know counter narcotic drug counter cartel effort had, uh, but it didn't last. Yeah, it didn't last. Well, that's that's huge. That was actually my next question. I was going to ask out of over twenty seven hundred fucking raids that you've done, if you felt like you've made a dent, and uh, you. Yeah, it, uh, but you did, and then it went back. Yeah. So and, I mean. Um, the raids, and then then getting to work in, in, uh, in, in as a bodyguard in an advisor role, advisory role for some uh, for a governor that worked in in Baja, uh, and then trying I'm just trying to figure out, you know, all of the all of the effort that was being put put into uh, finding these two large groups of cartels that were fighting for the richest drug route on the planet. That goes right through Tijuana yeah. into the into California. Um, it's one of the richest drug routes for a reason because it feeds the largest drug market in the world in the mm -hmm. form of the U.S. and specifically California. So you would hit somebody uh, high level, you'd send them to prison, and the next day there's two more guys yeah. setting up, um, or you pacified. This area, um, and all of a sudden, well, there's no competition here, so other forces start moving in discreetly, and eventually would revert back to the same problem. Um, I think the, I think the main problem is a lack of a long-term plan when it came to all of that. All the plans were five, six years related to the presidential term that was currently in power. Uh, so a presidential term would end, and everything that worked got discarded. Everything that didn't work got discarded, and everybody would start off from square one. You know, an example, simple example of this: Felipe uh, Calderon decided to militarize the police forces, so basically turned them into more of a militaristic approach to fight some of these cartels. The guy that replaced him said, "We're not going to do that. We're going to do something completely different." So they they made a new police force. And militarized it, right? Yeah. And then the current administration is a leftist guy, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, very to the left, crazy guy, um, not a very good president. Um, 
he the first thing he said, I'm gonna do completely the opposite of what all these people did. I'm gonna amnesty for the cartels, abrazos no balazos policy, which means hugs, not bullets. Um, we're gonna completely do something different. And the first thing he does is he forms a national guard force and he puts the military in charge. So he's like, this is the same thing again, right? Yeah. So it's a systemic form of amnesia. Yeah. Every six years, they forget everything and just do it all over again. And everybody that was related to whatever efforts that succeeded in the past get vilified or get persecuted or prosecuted. That's the thing that's happening now. So one of the governors that I that I work with, a very honorable man, like finding somebody like that in politics in Mexico is a rare thing. But I trust that man with the with my life and the, the life of my family. If I had to, he's a very stand up guy. I witness I witness his efforts. He didn't hide. You know, he really believed in what he was doing. And now he's being persecuted for cartel ties, uh, which I know for a fact are bogus. But it's a leftist president now, and he's going getting and going after all the conservative to the right uh, administrations in yeah. his past. That's, that's the thing. He's not addressing the fucking problem. No, no it's a, the easiest thing is to blame. Yeah, who was before, right? So that's. Uh, How long did it take for? Uh, it sounds like he cleaned up Baja pretty fucking good and made a a, a massive. It, it dent. was it was the most dangerous. The Tijuana was in, on the most dangerous cities in the world list. I, it was number one, and it ceased to be on that list after some of the efforts that I was involved in and some of the people that. Uh, like uh, like uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lazola took charge of the local police forces there. Uh, he disarmed all of the Tijuana police force and cleaned it up, which was an insane thing to do. Um, it dropped off that list and things pacified. Uh, cartels, cartel members, and cartel convoys ceased to be a op in the open thing. They would like when I started, you would see these cartel, a fully armed cartel convoys, just in the middle of the day, just drive through the city and abduct somebody and just take them and nobody would do anything. Uh, he put fear into the equation. Um, that, the, that, that, that in the open presence stopped. Yeah. Um, abductions for ransom were a big thing in that, in the city. Um, th that kind of lowered and stopped for a while and thing, things went back to normal, right? So much back to normal that, more a lot of protests started happening to get the military to go back to their military barracks to get the police to stop being militaristic and to turn into more, to more of a community policing force. So again, bad times create uh, bad times create bad men, uh, uh, strong men, strong men, and good times, and we went into that cycle. Yeah. And now we're back again into the whole Tijuana is on the one of the uh, I think it was last year was the most dangerous city on the planet. No like murders per capita. Um, and then there's a new generation cartel allyship with the Tijuana cartel that is fighting for control over Tijuana with the Sinaloa cartel. And it's back to square one. Yeah. Damn. Seven, eight people die every every night in Tijuana. Damn. Uh, related to the cartel violence. So kind of wrapping up your career, um, you talk about kind of being recruited by the cartel. Um, and I kind of wanted to go a little deeper into that. And uh, <clears throat> I would imagine that you're recruited 
several times or had friends. You had already said that you had friends that have been recruited out of the uh, yeah. out of the police or maybe the military and into the cartel. I mean, the offer was it was an offer. You know, it yeah. was always they were always you would always get intermediaries approaching you like, hey, yeah, and like oh, this this is, this is much uh, money. All it takes is for you to work with us, you know. But you, it's it, it was obvious to anybody, you know. As soon as you take a, an offer like that, mm-hmm. you're you're owned, you're theirs. If you fuck up, if you're not useful, or if somebody finds out you're working for somebody that they're they're not a part of, you'll either get arrested, or get killed by the rival group that you're working against, um, or your career ends. Right. So I got a lot of offers, a lot of them. I uh, never took any of them. Um, a lot of my friends and a lot of the people that I used to work with did, or eventually will put, would put into a position where there was no choice. Plata or plomo, silver or lead. Colombian term, but it's popular in Mexico. Yeah. Another code for it, it was one finger up and one finger down. You know, what do you want? You want the, you want plata or plomo? You know, you want to be on the ground or you want to yeah. stay up here in the world of the living? Um, I wasn't greedy. Um. Uh, there's a lot of people that went into policing in Mexico. They wanted to find a million dollars and bury in a wall or something, or, uh, or just be on the payroll of, of somebody. I remember going to some of the meetings uh, at the office and seeing, you know, some new Hummers outside and some of the guys owned. It's like kind of scratching my head at it, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of us went through a, a certification process called Calia. It's an American certification process. And with that, you know, a lot of confidence exams, polygraph testing, all this type of stuff. All of us went through it. Um, a lot of people got kicked out or, or fired after they went through that process, uh, which to us, to me, you know, I passed, so I, was, I stayed on. So I figured that all the people that had passed stayed on. They were on the up and up. You know, but people can be corrupted, like, from one day to another, right? So we were careful about everything, but it, I felt a bit better that everybody was going through it. Um, administration ends, somebody comes, uh, another administration comes in and a landmark case declares everybody that was fired based on the polygraph exam or the confidence exams as unconstitutional. And all of a sudden you have six years worth of people that were uh, kicked out of the job coming back into the job, their, their, uh, wages being paid forward. And you had people that were suspected of seeing a lower cartel participation in the office now back at the office. So, uh, so it, it got uh, it got really bad, um, and you know, basically brought into the office all the the, the work that I was doing um, ended. I got an offer to work for a single side of it, basically. They told us, hey, remember you're working here? Yeah. Well, we're going to work against these guys over here only. And we want you to come in. And... Okay, let me think about it. Basically, we want us to work against one side, which yeah. means you want us to work for this side. Yeah. I resigned that day. and uh, There was just no getting out of it or squirming out of it or going somewhere else. I didn't have any. All the people that I knew within high-level government were gone because the administration changed. All the people that I knew in the leadership in the office were moved around, and I just had no choice. So I, I uh, went uh, went outside, uh, got my resignation printed out, signed it, handed everything in in the duffel bag, handed in my MP5, my gun, my badge, everything, radio. 
uh, got myself into a car, called some of my friends, my American friends. Um, actually, two, uh, two of them went down there, kind of helped me out to get out of there. Uh, Marines, you know, God bless the United States Marine Corps. Um, and they, uh, they helped me cross the border. And, I, you know, um, family in tow by this point, which was, uh, that was probably the hardest part. Um, I had choices uh, in the U.S. that I didn't have in Mexico. Yeah, uh, it wasn't a choice that I took lightly, and it wasn't uh, something that I wanted to do at that point. But I didn't have a choice down there at that point. Uh, most of my friends didn't have that choice, and a lot of them actually, you know, went uh, got out of the job and seeked employment elsewhere. Yeah. Do you keep in touch with any of those guys? No. It's no? a. It's it's one of those things where. Like uh, it's 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 not doesn't serve anybody's interest to to make yeah. contact with these people. Um, I mean, there's there's people that I worked with for years. Uh, I slept on on the same floors as them, ate out of the same tuna cans as them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I went to some of their birthday parties of their kids, and uh, now I see them rolling out there in some you know, luxury vehicles, getting twelve thousand dollars paid uh, to them every two weeks. Damn. As a salary, um, and working uh, for some of the most powerful drug organizations on the planet, with uh, a lot of government training on their side, uh, a lot of American government specialty training on their side, um, and just basically upping the game. Uh, we just went through the most uh, lethal year to be a Mexican in, in the country's history, the most violent year in our history this past year, and this year is going to beat that year probably. Um, and it's being fueled by people like me that went into that fight, got all these, uh, that all this experience, all these skills, and they're basically tossed into the garbage. Yeah. As they would then flip to, uh, you know, the whole career path was just non-existent, and that's what's fueling some of this fight as well. You know, some of these people just, what, what else am I going to do, right? Yeah. Um. None of none of them had the the opportunities that I had. So, and I don't blame them. Realistically, I just can't blame them. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but a lot of them are out there. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's take a uh, let's take a quick break, and then uh, when we come back, we'll kind of talk about the structure of. Uh, some of these guys and some, sure. you know, and then, and, and uh, go into that. There's a lot of people looking for land these days. As we continue to uh, lose our freedoms. So we're on our way to look at a piece of property out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, this particular piece only sits on an acre and a half, I believe, 1.5 acres. All right, Ed, we're back from the break, and uh, I want to kind of go into some of the structure of the cartels, and uh, and then I got like a hodgepodge of questions that are just a bunch of random shit, but. Um, <clears throat> You kind of talked about how fast they bounce back um, after the after the uh, political leaders change. 
uh, with a different strategy. And just to kind of put that in perspective for the audience, I read something uh, when I was reading, it may have been in a documentary, I can't remember, but it was talking about a a family that was running basically like a just a small family cocaine operation out of Mexico. Uh, sounded like maybe five to 10 family members. And within a few years that had grown into a cartel organization that was over a hundred thousand, uh, with over a hundred thousand members of that cartel. And, uh, so just to kind of put that in perspective for the audience on how fucking big that is, that Google employs 108,000 people. So within a few years, um, they grew that cartel into basically an organization as fucking powerful as Google. And uh, <clears throat> the only way they could have done that is by the demand, um, which is one of the first things I want to ask is how much of that demand is coming to the United States versus Canada versus Europe? Are we the number one consumer? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes. So... Consumer the the U.S. market is what drives most of the growth that some of these organizations have. Most of it comes through the U.S. A lot of it actually goes to places like Europe. Um, a lot there, there's been a, a recent upsurge in uh, nautical uh, trips between um, you know uh, Latin America into places like Africa that then get unloaded in Africa and then get uh, sent over to Europe, right? That's that's one one of the routes that, that it's taken. Canada as well. I mean, it's a growing drug market. Uh, Canada is one of the fastest growing drug markets out there right now. Uh, so a lot of that is fueling some of these smaller organizations growing, right? Mm -hmm. um, another thing that's fueling them is their ability to also make a living off their environment. Mexico itself is a giant drug market. That's a lot of that's one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about as well. Um, uh, Tijuana is an example of this. And most of the killings are happening between uh, rival uh, cartels in Tijuana, killing off the local sellers of, mm -hmm. of each other's sides. So most of the people that die during the night in Tijuana is like seven to eight or something like that every night. They're in different sales points in Tijuana where they're selling there locally. So that also feeds their organizations. Uh, they all, they're all, they also have money within legitimate businesses from, uh, you know, there's a few tequila companies out there that have been linked uh, to people like El Chapo's family. Okay. Um, so it's legitimate money growing out of some of these. Uh, I think uh, George Clooney sold his tequila company for about a billion or something like that. So you can imagine some of the money being made legally through some of their uh, influences and some of the properties that can buy with some of the money generated from trafficking drugs into the U.S. They sound pretty diversified, and I want to get into that in a minute, but you were talking about uh, a lot of the uh, violence in Tijuana is, is cartel on cartel, and the way I just took what you said is they're killing each other's lowest level. Yeah, guys, the street, yeah, they're, they're, the street more, guys. they're most exposed level, which is their sales points, local sales points. So how uh, how are they identifying each guy? Like you follow, so you follow the user. Is you follow the user? Yeah, and they're pretty easy to spot. Mm -hmm. You follow the user, and uh, <clears throat> there's a 
Um, I'm sorry about the French that I keep saying, you know, the bad words, but they're, they're, they're the words that we used to use when we worked. If you want to find somebody, find where they sleep, work, and fuck. Mm-hmm. When I say fuck, I mean where they partake on their vices. So, like, even we would follow the people that were, you know, we recognize as users. We'd follow them around and we'd immediately recognize sales points. So, uh, the, traditionally, most of the sales points in in, in Tijuana specifically, uh, they're all kind of on the outskirts of the city, uh, like in the eastern part of the city or some of the older uh, uh, older parts of the city that are on the hillsides. Tijuana has a river going through it, so that's where most of the downtown, more developed parts are. So if people want to buy, they go into the hillsides and then come back. Okay. So that's where most of the killing is happening. Mostly, you know, again, sales points. And they identify each other because, you know, and grab a junkie off the street. Where are you buying it? Over there. That's not one of our guys. Okay. I guess what I was uh, kind of going towards is do they have uh, any specific markings for different cartels no, like no uh, they 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 they've become very good at not doing that uh from tattoos they used to there used to be a big culture with criminal mexican criminal uh, organizations having tattoos or markings of some kind uh we would find people that had like spots where they mechanically or chemically removed tattoos and it was like a standing order within some of the organizations yeah so they're they're very good at that and detaching themselves from some of these uh, sales points. Okay. So uh, the, the, the high-level distributors will give them to give the loads that are going to be sold in different ports of parts of the city to somebody else that is unattached to the distributor. It's like a waypoint. So they'll give them that, and they'll go and hand it over, and somebody else will get the money. So they attach those two points. Uh, all communication goes through paper notes and or cell phones that get changed on a daily basis, that type of stuff. Okay. So, but they're, they're, they're very good bookkeepers. I mean, they're like, if you miss 20 pesos out of your cut over the day, you're going to get a visit by somebody. So good. It just seems like killing each other off, you know, cartel versus cartel, uh, the turf war, whatever uh, it is that's going on and why they're trying to eliminate each other. Uh, we just said, you know, one organization grew to a hundred thousand, uh, a hundred thousand person strong cartel within a few years. And it, when an organization's that fucking big, you, there's no way I, I, I feel like there's no way you could possibly know who's on your side, who's yeah. selling drugs for Cartel X and who's selling drugs yeah, so, for so, Cartel Y. So they 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 divide themselves up into cells basically. So an example of this was 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 happening at what was happening in Tijuana back in 2008. Uh, they had a, a Sinaloa cartel had a cell in Tijuana, and they had a lieutenant that was in charge of the cell that reported directly back to Sinaloa to the head of the car, Sinaloa cartel, which was not El Chapo, by the way. As, as a lot of your U.S. media and a lot of Mexican media wants to make him out as the head of the Sinaloa cartel. Well, Chapo Guzman was probably number three or number four in the in the whole scale of things. He was not the head of the Sinaloa cartel. No shit. But, that, but that, we'll talk about that later if you want. Uh, but what they usually do is they send out uh, un lugar teniente, or like a lieutenant, to run a cell. He gets fed money, he gets fed guns, and he gets fed instructions. 
Um, his task is to secure drug routes, to attack any sort of rival uh, rival enemies or people that are going to want to gain control over any sort of illicit or illegal activity. This includes human trafficking. This includes um, abduction for ransom. This includes uh, stolen vehicle trafficking from uh, from the U.S. into Mexico or even in Mexico when they steal some of the newer vehicles and traffic in some of the uh, the, the, the cars themselves or they clone um, the serial numbers and send the cars all the way down to southern Mexico and actually come up with different paperwork for them. So that, that their their whole purpose is to report directly back to the to the to the head of the cartel uh, to control uh, to control distribution, to control all these illicit activities and to tax people, right? Um, they have several arms within that cell structure. The enforcement arm, sicarios, the guys that go out and kill people, the guys that go out and intimidate people, the guys that go out and eliminate the competition. They have whole cells of people that just every night they go out there hunting rival distribution networks or rival cartel guys. That's their whole deal, right? Um, the reason why they're hot, these sicarios are hard to get is that they they drive around and roam around without any guns. They find somebody that they want to get after. And there's a, two ladies, old women, probably in their late 60s, drive up to them and hand over the guns that they use. They use them and they get handed back to these old ladies. And they, these old ladies are inconspicuously just moving about the city with a trove of guns in their cars. No or shit. they just dump them, right? So that's the enforcement arm of it. And then there's the uh, distribution and security arm of it. Uh, this distribute this, they distribute the uh, the drugs. They take care of distribution or movement of loads of drugs going into the U.S. and or money coming down from the U.S. Or recently, there's been an uptake in um, precious metals being trafficked from the U.S. into Mexico as a way of payment instead of money. So like uh, gold, basically. Um, so there's a whole administrative uh, distribution part of it where they move money to the U.S. Uh, money from the U.S. and guns from the U.S. and drugs up into the U.S. So there's a whole thing there. Uh, then there's the administration side of it. You know, people have to keep tabs over numbers. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of numbers. Um, there's a lot of people going around and and uh, figuring out uh, what uh, percentages of money are being uh, taken in at certain times of the year so they can ask questions at the second time of the year. So like when the COVID thing hit, sales dropped. So that kind of freaked some of these cartels up, and then they, they started uh, figuring ways of getting around some of the lockdown measures by actually going door to door and distributing their product. No shit. So they they developed this uh this drug Uber basically right in some in some parts of the country. So you have your your enforcement or security arm, you have your distribution arm or uh, distribution arm and. Uh, and you have your administration arm, administrative arm, and then you have this at the center of all this. There's the this uh, the figure of a lugarteniente or a cartel leadership. Um, he usually has other underlings that uh, also perform leadership tasks, and sometimes these underlings don't know each other or don't have any attachment to each other. So it's like a cell within a cell. Okay. So we would get somebody that was in charge of a group of forty sicarios. And all he had was a different phone that would be handed to him so he could get instructions. How are they broken up? Are they broken up by region? Yeah. So like uh, the Tijuana, that when, when I was active, Tijuana was divided up into four pieces. There was there was uh, playas near the beach. 
There was a there was a center El Centro or the old uh, and the old federal Colonia, which is like uh, that's one of the richest uh, drug markets. That's where the Americans walk into buy some of their drugs and then move back uh, b back to the U.S. Uh, the east side of the city, where a lot of the uh, the trafficking uh, from within Mexico, like large drug loads, would come be stored there and then would get uh, put into vehicles, put on people, put into tunnels, all that stuff. That's kind of the, the main main part of the activity there. Um, and uh, some places like this, uh, the the older colonies and places like La Mesa, Las Huertas, all these other other parts where they would have their houses, where they would have, where they would party, where they would hide. So you'd have these divisions, and each of these divisions had their own kind of like head guy that would know everything going on there. He would have the police on their payroll. The he would have the investigative police on their payroll. He would have people he, he would know in the media that would cover up things for them. He would pay for certain election processes of the local representatives. So, again, the, they were more connected than the self than the phone company. There, you know, they had all these connections everywhere. Yeah, so that's how they worked. Um, Backing up real quick, sure. You were saying lieutenants uh, are kind of in charge. So, a lieutenant of a cartel in a region would be in charge of multiple streams of revenue, which is mainly drugs and then sex trafficking car theft, uh, whatever else. Then they are also in charge of the Sicarios. They're also in charge of the 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 trafficking routes. So this almost kind of sounds like maybe a corporate or maybe even a franchise model. Yeah. Where each lieutenant owns or maybe doesn't own, but is in charge of uh his business model. Yeah. And then they have the exact same business model all over fucking Mexico. Yeah. Does and, that include, the, uh, is it run the same way in the United States? Yes. Uh, yes. So the, more so than a corporation, it kind of reminds you of some sort of underground government. Like, because they they not only provide money sometimes for things like schools and, and uh, people's immigration processes or lawyers or... They also police some of the communities. So there's some communities that, you know, something gets stolen. They don't call the cops. They call the cartels. That's why you see a lot of these videos popping up online. Cartel guys giving the board uh, against uh, uh, so on some of these guys. They lower their pants and just, you know, uh, go to town on them. And they're, they're, that's corporal punishment provided by a quasi-narco government that is working at parallel with the government. Okay. Um, so in that way, that's I think that's more equated to how they act. Of course, they're a business, you know, and they the, just like the government taxes, they tax as well. So sometimes they tax certain companies for protection. So there's a bunch of mining operations going on along the northern border in Mexico that all they're all taxed by cartels, depending on where they are, so they can continue operating. Um, and the U.S. side, you get some of the same structure, not as overt. Again, they can't be as overt up here because you still have uh, you still have a, work, a working government. You still have uh, you still have a police force. You still have a federal police force that has that isn't anywhere near as corrupted as other parts of the world, specifically in Mexico. So this, 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 they work with fear here. Uh, but in the same way, you, they have a single a lieutenant or cartel head that runs the operation very much like they did down there, with a with a with an armed branch or an enforcement branch or security branch that goes off and does things for them. 
to a to a distribution branch that takes care of money loads going down to Mexico, maybe a buying arm or an administrative arm that uh, that just gathers things like ammo or guns or whatever the the people back home want. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. clothing, sometimes weird things like clothing or the latest and greatest uh, Jordan shoes will get smuggled right where the in the drug tunnels where the drugs come into the U.S. Some of the some of those luxury goods might get smuggled back into. New Mexico, uh, because somebody sent a shopping list over, right? Um, but they're they act differently here in the U.S. Uh, the distribution arms in the U.S. are usually done through other third parties. Not in Mexico, that's not the case. So mm -hmm. distribution down there is done by locals. They they gather people that work for them as distributors. Up here in the U.S., you see a lot of uh, uh, motorcycle uh, gangs being utilized uh, by cartels as distribution. Uh, as distribution or local gangs. Chicago is a good example of this. Sinaloa cartel runs a lot of their distribution with some of the local black gangs in places like Chicago. So they use them by proxy because they are, they're aware that obviously I'm not going to get a Mexican guy that works for my, that's loyal to my cartel to distribute this drug in this community where he doesn't look or talk like the people there. Yeah. So they're smart about that. So they go through secondary people like that here in the U.S. That's kind of what changes in how they operate here. So these guys, that <clears throat> they're creating their own, uh, they have created their own fucking government, essentially. Yeah. And they're supporting their local communities. And they are... On both, on both sides of the border. Are acting as, essentially they're acting as law enforcement in Mexico. And so these guys are probably fucking chomping at the bit right now for... The police to be defunded right here in the oh, u.s because they're going to take I, a major fucking role in that i know for a fact that most of the places where police uh police presence is lower or basically a non-existent because of the current situation i know for a fact that they've taken all the advantages to move product to move guns to move and do and clear out whatever they need to do in this uh, in this time of the great law enforcement pause that the country's going through. So they're right being now. extremely fucking oh, proactive yes. with that. So think about this. The largest, fastest growing cartel in Mexico was the new generation cartel grew exponentially in influence and power, not just in Mexico, but in the U.S. during the COVID epidemic. Sinaloa cartel was struggling to get fentanyl for their product. They actually had to smuggle it from American ports down to Mexico, which a load was captured in, in, in Tijuana, to feed their apparatus. Uh, the, the reason why that happened is because the new generation cartel controls the Pacific side ports in Mexico, in places like Colima, right? So the, their distribution was clear and easy. You know, China was sending their stuff, they were getting their product, and they were growing exponentially. Uh, so the pause only affected you know, law enforcement in Mexico was also kind of paused a bit, uh, but they grew exponentially with the with the shutdown. Also, the seen law cartels' uh, capacity to meet demand lowered; their capacity was inter was uninterrupted, and uh, they've been working on growing on their influence on the U.S. side for years. There was a recent operation that nabbed about eighty six of them or something like that by the DEA, including. Uh, Including uh, one of uh, one of his, one of uh, the head leader of the, the new generation cartels, uh, kids, right? So they've been growing under like, 
underground here in, in the U.S. for years. And they're, they, 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 that uh, hit they had was nothing. They're, yeah, they're didn't even put a dent in it. They're growing. Um, and again, there's the fentanyl heroin drug market. Now uh, bogus or fake pain pills coming out of China also coming into the U.S., right? Um, I wanted to get into this, but fuck it, we'll do it now. Uh, China, I, uh, when I was doing my research, it sounds like China's taken a major interest in, in the cartels in, in Mexico. And uh, I've operated around China overseas several times. And uh, those motherfuckers are just as ruthless, if not more, uh, than some of the cartels. Um, and uh, they also play by by no rules. <clears throat> why is the interest in China, or uh, the why is China's interest in Mexico so becoming so strong? Uh, it's your Achilles heel as a country. It's your number two largest consumer of American products in the world. It's a very destable place that's getting destabilized, destabilized even more. Uh, so this this whole weird thought process that Americans have that the cartels are getting their fentanyl from China from some sort of criminal element within China. Like, let's be clear. Nothing comes out of China, nothing happens in China without Chinese state being involved or knowing about it. This is a place where Big Brother is the real thing right everybody's monitored you saw it during the covid shutdown you saw it with the way they're handling handling the uyghur population so nothing coming out of china is coming out of china without them knowing so so yeah. all that fentanyl being brought out of china into mexico that's getting being put into heroin or some of these fentanyl fabrication sites that are being found in mexico now with clear instruction by chinese um laboratory specialists that's not a private entity that's not the, the triads or that's not a criminal activity that's a state chinese state sponsored activity it's clear state to anybody that kind of looks into this yeah um the, the you know one thing is regional destabilization that's usually that usually happens when they want something from that country so one thing happened politically in the within within the u.s and mexico relationship uh the trump phenomenon Right, uh, Trump came into office and said, "We're going to take a lot of our business out of Mexico. Going to bring it back." That was one of the things he, uh, that, that, he that he said that was going to happen and did happen. A lot of businesses uh, took their took their plants and American business took their plants and companies out of Mexico. Um, instead of it affecting Mexico in a negative way, Chinese plants and Chinese companies supplanted them immediately. No shit. So. Something happened in that interval where somebody on this side figured out that's probably a mistake. And things started balancing out. Interesting thing to note, we currently have in Mexico a leftist president that is open Chavista, that's open Maduro supporter. But somehow there's an open and like really friendly relationship with the U.S. when it comes to the president and uh, Trump and the president down there. I think Trump is very much aware of the danger that Mexico is in with the Chinese influence and the foreign influence within the country. Um, another factor that doesn't get talked a lot about is that Mexico has probably the largest mineable deposits of lithium right on the border. And China, uh, China 
through a comp through a Canadian company will actually won the rights to mine that a few years back and their mining rights got canceled. And I'm not, you know, gonna gonna go into Alex Jones territory, right? But a lot, I mean the, the the conspiracy part of it. Uh right where that mining where that mining discovery was made that's where the the uh, the mormon massacre happened so it's a it's a key place and things happen there yeah. it's a very strange kind of environment for all the influences and all the pushing and pulling that's happening in that area um some of the people that i've talked to um in the security field some of the people that i've talked to in security field outside of the friendly neighbors of the us like uh in Mexico, there's a lot of Cuban uh, intelligence uh, services, uh, service operations going on all over the place, just like places like Venezuela. You can see a clear partnership and influence with China there, right? It's in their best interest to gain ownership and control over a place like Mexico, which is going currently going through a through a lot of bad stuff, a lot yeah. of uh, a lot of crime, a lot of destabilization. There's whole swaths of uh, Mexico that are controlled by cartels. Um, the new generation cartel, I think, in a way, is a product of that outside influence. It's the only cartel that grew during the COVID epidemic shutdown. That tells me that there's some sort of outside influence from China there. Are you seeing a lot of um, Are you seeing a lot of Chinese coming into Mexico and kind of setting up shop? Uh, the The largest uh, one of the largest uh, uh, cash seizures was uh, done uh, on a guy, Jen uh, Li Segon. It's a Chinese Mexican national, uh, somewhere in the vicinity of a hundred million dollars cash found at his house. He was trafficking fentanyl legally uh, and meth precursors into the country under some some sort of like paperwork legality. So there's some shady stuff going on there. How long has this shit been going on with China? Uh, as, as soon as uh, as soon as the U.S. got a taste for meth, I think that's probably the start of it. When was that? Ten years ago probably a bit more further back than probably 15 years ago 15 years yeah and then there's this been this, this has just been exponentially growing um is uh, it is it weird uh how do i phrase this are you seeing more and more chinese people is it becoming like a, a common thing to one see of, one of the chinese? largest communities of chinese uh, uh nationals is are, are, are growing all along the border wow Right, so, I mean, I'm again. This is, this is. I'm not. This is not something. Uh, it's not something in the realm of conspiracy. Yeah. Like if you can, this is clearly happening uh, out in the open in a lot of in a lot of in a lot of regards, and people can research this and see it. They see it for themselves. Um, to deny that the largest cartel in Mexico has grew during the COVID epidemic, because they clearly had a supply chain from China. Yeah. Is to deny what's right in front of your face. To deny that uh, more and more Narinco made military grade stuff is popping up in print places in Mexico is also missing something that's in front of your face. Uh, and to deny that, uh, so how many people die from fentanyl related uh, issues here in the US? Tons. Um, if you want to confront a military, the US is a superior military force. Mm hmm. How can you corrode that? It makes perfect sense. Generational. And the thing with China is they're fucking extremely effective. No way. At whatever they do. No uh, they have a lifetime president. Yeah. One, one, one being they don't, they don't fucking play by rules either. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, China will come in and uh, they'll open a whorehouse immediately to start gathering intelligence because people are going to go to the fucking whorehouse. They're going to fuck a Chinese hooker. The hooker is going to milk them for information. The information gets to where it needs to go. And it happens like that. It's a, a Cuban intelligence services that are operating all over Central America and specifically Venezuela. That's how they act, right? That's they're, they're, they're people are playing checkers with these guys that are playing chess, and they play the long game. That's a, that's something I think the U.S. doesn't get. Um, example: China has a lifetime president. Yeah. Cuba has a lifetime regime with the Castro with the Castros. They're playing a really long game against a a, 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 a country that has elections. And politics change every, 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 uh, every four, eight years. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and they see the, 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 the clear line and divide. So, I mean, there's blood in the water. And I think, I think they can smell that. Everybody's taking advantage of it. Yeah. And, uh, I got, again, foreign eyes. I'm, like, I'm, I'm new here. I'm trying to earn my way into becoming an American. Um, but I, I still have that outside perspective. People getting offended by you know the, the the whole Chinese virus wording or or China isn't the villain and, and the, the country and people kind of coming into the defense of that people within the NBA not wanting to speak up about China because they're the Chinese are the best uh, one of their best clients as far as buying some of the rights to watching some of these NBA games Disney. I mean, they, yeah. they can't say anything wrong. But how surreal is it that you can't speak uh, critically about China if you work for the NBA? I mean, yeah. that is outside of the I mean, that's out of outside of the realm of what I thought being an American was. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a weird time, uh, but I think that's. Um, they're clearly waging some sort of long-term war campaign against the U.S. and uh, Mexico is being utilized as a as a tool for that. Yeah, interesting. With the fentanyl, uh, going back to that, uh, I always what are they putting the fentanyl in? Uh, heroin, heroin, and also now they're 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 building uh, building or making uh, fake pain medication. They're kind of basing it off some of the pill designs and ba very badly made. I've seen some pretty good ones uh, coming out of Mexico in the past few years. But back when it was active, they were crudely made. Uh, but, you know, somebody hands you some pain medication in a dark room somewhere, you take it. You don't even know what it is. Yeah. Um, so usually some of the heroin that's being grown in the hillsides out there, a uh, weird phenomenon happened. California legalized... Uh, Marijuana, Colorado, a lot of places are kind of following suit in the U.S. So the the demand for mar marijuana went down. It's not over though. They still they still traffic marijuana into the U.S., which is pretty surprising. Uh, but uh, a lot of the hillsides that were covered with weed back then are now covered in poppy fields. Mm. But the thing is that some of these hillsides have been grow that stuff have been, stuff has been growing in those hillsides for decades. So the heroin yield and the strength of the heroin isn't anywhere as near as some place like Afghanistan uh, or some of the stuff that comes out of the you know Asia. Uh, it's actually very low quality and strength. So the, the cartel said, you know, just put fentanyl in it to 
give it a kick. It just seems kind of counterproductive because heroin's already so fucking addictive. Yeah. You know? And then and then when you do hear of you know people overdosing on heroin, uh, a lot of the times you know it comes out that it was laced with fentanyl. Yeah. So it seems it's. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a reason for it, but in it's, my it's, mind, I'm like, yeah, why would you do that? Because you're killing the fucking consumer, which yeah. seems to be bad for business. Well, well, you know they. They 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 shifted to to methamphetamines for a while, like as their main thing, and methamphetamines and cocaine. Uh, but then they realized how much of a grassroots effort there was in the U.S. to make your own. And they didn't like that. Yeah. So they saw this perfect storm and window to just dedicate themselves to heroin, fentanyl, put them together, and a bunch of people that were on opiates already in the U.S. A lot of the a lot of the crackdown that went on in the U.S. against uh, prescription opiates that were left without a product. Yeah, and it was a perfect storm for the cartels to kind of fill that void. Do you think this is going to uh, create any? Do you think this is going to create any problems with uh, Afghanistan and Mexico now that they're getting into the opiate trade? Because that's the number one. Well, I've, I've been when it comes to Taliban, Al Qaeda. That's yeah, I've, I've ISIS. Been, I've been researching. And anything, so just to be, you know, clear and open about it, uh, I have friends all over Mexico. Uh, a lot of them, people that I used to work with, uh, and they're still active within law enforcement in Mexico. Some of the people that I've trained, like I still go down there and train uh, members of law enforcement and, uh, and and some of the security forces. So they anything that's weird gets sent to me, like horrible from horrible videos to uh farsi translation books found in the desert somewhere uh so i've always been always on the lookout for anything middle eastern in mexico yeah um and interestingly enough it's an open order within most of the major cartels that run operations along the border to not touch anything related to islamic extremism or islamic anything why is that because they're they they don't want to they're they're afraid of the word the designation. Mm. They're afraid of the terrorist designation. That's something that puts fear in them. Okay. That's something we thought I we all those I thought it was coming after after that family was murdered on the border. And it's it's an sorry for saying Mormon massacre. American massacre. They're they they were American nationals. Yeah. And they also had Mexican citizenship. I don't care if they pray to the moon. They yeah. were American, and also they were women and children. Yeah, uh, I thought that was coming. I I heard the designation. I heard the pressure coming on, and I said, "That's that's." I think that's going to change things, but it didn't. It was walked back. You know, again, regional stability. I'm sure there's a good reason for that, um, but uh, they're afraid of it, so they don't want to touch anything related to uh, extremism. I mean, there's probably a few cases of them kind of slipping through the cracks or some smaller cartels helping out uh, some sort of Muslim uh, group or something like that. But it's mostly like a touchy subject with them. They would they, any anything that smells of it, they won't touch it or they will they will take care of it themselves. It's not good for their business. Basically. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't see that becoming a problem. Uh, but uh, who knows? Uh, uh, this, this this whole uh, People are moving more freely uh, 
in and out of Mexico now. Uh, again, the government is losing a grip on its ports of entry. It's declining in some places. You know, we saw this with the uh, Culiacanazo incident where the government forces captured one of El Chapo's kids and were basically beaten by the whole of the Sinaloa cartel. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? I mean, it could be something on the horizon. It'll be interesting. I mean, they're definitely dipping into their products by, or into their uh, profits by now. And and the funny thing about um, them is they only use that to fund their intention. Yeah. You know, and uh, we know their intentions. And if they can't, uh, you know, if that takes away from the money that they're dumping into their intentions, then... I mean, fuck, man. It could you be know. something we'll see in the like. It could be something on the horizon. Yeah. Um, again, I think uh, Mexico is getting worse. There's, there's, there's no if ands or about it. Um, and people blame the COVID epidemic as far as the economic downturn that's going through. I mean, the incompetence and the, 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 the death spike and the violence in Mexico flared up way before that. Yeah. Um, and again, it's. It's 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 a clear a proxy war happening in Mexico between you know two major uh, forces, um, American interests and Chinese uh, probably Chinese sponsored state interests in, in Mexico. Roughly, how many different cartels uh, are down there? I mean, it's different numbers. I mean, hundreds, probably somewhere in the hundreds. You know. Uh, five of us can form a cartel then we can be named our, like a cartel and be named an organized crime group and work in a town and we're a cartel that just dedicates themselves to this town so there's a lot of them small ones uh but mostly all the small ones by proxy work for another bigger cartel so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of small ones that just hold control over certain parts of, of certain parts of the country how many main Cartels are that. I'd say there's two major ones that people need to keep an eye on and worry about. The new generation cartel, Cartel de Jalisco de Nueva Generación. Um, a cartel that originally was formed as a as an armed enforcement uh, elite wing to fight uh, the Zeta cartel when it was still when it was still active, when it was still the major threat for the Sinaloa cartel. So they basically the Sinaloa cartel basically made these uh this Mata Zetas group to fight the, against the Zetas. And um, they turn into their own thing. They turn into a cartel. They figured out, like, what? Well, we can be cartel ourselves. Yeah, okay, let's, so let's gain control of, they, they gain strategic control of places like Guadalajara, places like Colima, where the major ports are. So they basically, can, uh, they basically became the owners of the door for some of the precursors. And this was at the start of the shift from cocaine to heroin and fentanyl precursors for meth. Hmm. So they so they got it in at the right time to gain control of that. They've been growing exponentially. And it's not uh it's not a cartel like the Sinaloa cartel that flaunts their lavish lifestyles and gold guns and fast cars. They're very militaristic. They're very low key in some ways. They've smartened up. Yeah, and they recruit. They're always recruiting from military to police. Um they have legitimate training camps out there, you know. So we see, we see, we used to see these ISIS, uh, ISIS, uh, Al Qaeda training videos with the monkey bars. You know, yeah. that's happening now in in Mexico, and then there's actually like camps with these guys go out and train 
There's rumors of American uh, ex American military guys advising them. Uh, it's the only cartel in Mexico that's well, it's one of the only two only cartels in Mexico that has uh, dominance over the skies over their territories. So there's places in Guadalajara where helicopters don't fly because they they're afraid to get knocked down. They've already knocked down a few. Um, so they're 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 an incredible force to kind of face. Yeah. Um, they have they recently had a crackdown from the government going after him directly, which leads a lot of people to think that the federal government in Mexico has a deal with Sinaloa cartel. So there's some sort of effort being done against just the new generation cartel because they see him as a threat. Um, but they're growing. There's not there's no stopping their growth. Um, and you, you can see that a lot of that uh, growth is directly related to their ability to get stuff from the Pacific side of the ocean. That's one of the main reasons why it's growing. Wow. You talk uh, in depth several times about the Zeta cartel. And uh, for those of you that don't know who the Zeta cartel is, uh, they were started by Mexican Mexican special operations guys, correct? Yeah. Uh, special Forces is a, a lot of groups right now within the military claim that title. Mm -hmm. uh, back when they were... The, the, when the Zetas came about, that's a that's a generation of people uh, that had the GAFE title, a Grupo Aeromóvil de Fuerzas Especiales, basically an air mobile special forces group, different breed of people. I actually had and still have people that I know that I that I, that I work with every now and then that uh, didn't go the Zeta route and remained on. Different breed of guys, mostly college degrees, university degrees. Some of them have master's degrees. Uh, all of them have language skills. That's how you know these guys are special. Um, School of the Americas trained. Um, a lot of them have pictures in Fort Bragg and some crazy places and received some crazy jungle warfare training in Colombia and other places uh, in South America. So these guys are, these guys were monsters, basically. Um, and they were on government salaries, which are pretty shitty. Yeah. Um, eventually, uh, uh, the Gulf Cartel, headed at that time by OCL Cardenas Guillen, decided it would be an interesting thing to hire on some of these guys as bodyguards. Uh, so uh, a former member of that group that worked for his cartel said, I'll, I'll help you recruit them. Um, he went down there, made the offer, made the offer with money. All of them looked at each other and said, yeah, we're in. Empty out, emptied out the armory, filled their trucks, left on patrol, never came back. Wow. So all of a sudden you saw this high level, uh, sophisticated, highly trained um, SF group working for one of the major cartels in Mexico. And then they split off and became their own. And then again, just like the Matazetas from the Sinaloa cartel, they figured out, hey, we're doing all the work, we can be our own cartel. So they split off. They were labeled as being uh, some of the most ruthless guys out there. I think uh, I think they're being beat by the new generation cartel now. Really? Uh, yeah, but they were they were ruthless. They were very cold, calculated. Um, and this is this comes from secondhand stories and some some of the stories that I've heard from some of the people that belong to that unit. Um, they would have this thing where during training they would get a dog that they would you know, take care of for a few weeks. They would sleep with it, feed it, and all this type of stuff, name it. And then they would have to kill it and eat it after a time with random weaponry, crowbar, rock. Mm. 
So like, then if you didn't do it, you would get kicked out. So that's the type of individual that they were breathing, right? They were, um, they were um, desensitizing yeah. these guys. And then all of a sudden, imagine you're, you're this elite warfighter with all this training and all this oversight and all this leadership behind you and rules. All of a sudden, no rules. Yeah. You're your own guy. You're, you guys are just, what, what are the local cops going to do with their revolvers? It makes, it enables the, uh, the operator to reach maximum potential. Yeah. It was, so they were un unchained. Um, one of the things that I don't hear talked about much, but during a time, uh, the, the Zetas allied themselves with the Tijuana cartel to fight against Sinaloa. Zetas and Sinaloa enemies, long enemies. Um, and there was a prison break in Tijuana that was A-team level. Like, the A-team did it. You know, there's like, I was working back then. I didn't get to 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 witness it, but I, I got there to see the after effect. Uh, Tijuana prison. Uh, ever seen the movie, ever seen the movie Get the Gringo by Mel Gibson? Mm. That's based on that prison. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very old prison. Basically, the city grew around it. Uh, it's still active. It's been trying to get uh, deactivated for years, but they haven't been able to replace it completely. Um, a group of people dressed in medical garb and a few ambulances came to do a weekly transport of some of the members into their dialysis. It's like a, there was a weekly thing that happened at that prison. So everybody thought it was normal. And all of a sudden, precise, uh, precise, uh, uh, precise sniper fire at the guard towers uh, took them out. Um, explosives were used, uh, small frame charges and, and paper frame charges were used on some of the doors, uh, angle grinders and highly coordinated escape from the inside and the outside, uh, full body armor and some of these guys, you know, they, they, they managed to take out some high level cartel guys that were inside in a very coordinated thing. It shocked everybody how coordinated it was. Um, longstanding rumor is it was, as Zeta guys, um, Interesting little bit of information there. Um, all of them were doing port down. Hmm. All of them were port down, coordinated port down guys. All of them were using M4 specific uh, rifles. Uh, all of them had exactly the same kit in the same place on their on their on their stuff. So we know where they came from. As some reported, as far as what's being reported, um, another small element that you can tell these guys knew what they were doing. They had leg holsters, some of them, high. Oh shit! High leg holsters, you know, high. Yeah. Not, not, drop leg. Not the drop leg holster, like all the way down, down to the knee when somebody knows <laughs> what they're doing. All of them had that high leg holster, uh, just clearing the armor on some of them, and uh, they were wearing the lab coats to hide some of that stuff. And all of a sudden, they start working. Um, Zetas. That's fucking scary. You know, I mean, do you think that would have been fixed if their pay would have been better? I don't know. In Mexico, everybody has a price. Because, uh, I mean, I think limit. it's the same in the U.S. You know, I mean, guys aren't, uh, I mean, yeah, God, there are rumors of guys going down and doing shit like that in, in Latin America. But, you know, I mean, we saw a big, we saw a massive uh, influx into the contracting world from from the U.S. military. I mean, you can work U.S. military 
and kick the doors in. And, and that's what the guys want to do. They want to fucking kick doors in and they want to fucking kill bad guys and they want to feel that rush. And um, especially towards the beginning of the war, you could do that exact same fucking job. Um, not necessarily with all the same caliber of people, but you could jump over on some of these contracts and make, you could make an entire year's worth of salary in one fucking month on certain contracts as you could in, 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 in an entire year at a unit. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, there's a price there too. And, uh, I, the only way they tried to combat that was up the reenlistment bonuses. And, and so when I got out, uh, there were E7 and above, I think was getting $150,000 reenlistment bonus, but still even that doesn't fucking compare to the money. No. You know? Um, uh, like uh, salaries that I've heard from the elite guys, $12,000 every two weeks. Yeah. Plus they kept to keep whatever they find. Oh, so that's, I mean, yeah, a little extra incentive. <laughs> uh, also, Americans going down there, like I've heard rumors from specialty people going down and train, training people in Mexico. You see elements of, of that, and uh, everybody says, "Ed." They laugh at the fact that every now and then they find these fifty cals or these uh, long range platforms out there without any glass on them, not any mm. sights, and they're like, "I mean, nobody was using that, right?" One of the first things that gets uh, repurposed by the yeah. military are the sites. Yeah. EOTech. Yeah. ACOG, right? So you get presented a naked rifle. Uh, one of the things we saw in some long range, uh, we saw some long range shooting sites that were training themselves up down there. I would see, see small elements of training and or some sort of specialty. Um, screws, uh, screws being painted uh, on there so they know where they were, uh, dialed in scopes, uh, German glass, uh, um, spotter scopes found in conjunction with the, with the oh, long range shooting scopes. So they um, have the dope on their gun. The dope is the calculations dope for yeah, dope yeah. cards, written dope cards. Well, the first time I found one, I didn't know what it was. I, I'd send it to, a. Uh, to um, a Marisoc uh, friend of mine, and so what? What's this? Does this make sense to you? Oh yeah, that's pretty cool. Where did you find that? Oh shit, that's not cool. Um, a duct tape. One of the things that I saw once: a uh, duct taped to a rifle. So duct taped next to a rifle with the rounds on the duct tape. Yep. Which is a. Uh, that's a sniper. It's it's a, it's a very small detail that you know people might not know about, about that openly, but it's a thing I saw. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And a lot of these things I would share with people uh, that I would train with later on or would train us or I formed a relationship with a lot of the advisors that would come in. I had good English, so I, I, would, I could form a report and I would share some of these things with some people up here and they would like peek out with some of the details that I were seeing. Uh, right now, what I'm see we're seeing is military grade night vision, like the good stuff, the $24,000, $30,000 stuff yeah. being found randomly in places down there. So that's what they're doing now. CNC machines making lowers, um, suppressors, high quality suppressors being made somewhere, cranked out somewhere down there um, by some people. And basically ripping off some of the major companies in the US designs and remaking them down there. Right. So 
That's scary stuff. So they're uh, they're getting the best training in the world. Well, 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 I think experience experience is a bitch of a teacher, but she will never lie to you. Um, when you pair that with having the neighbor that has some of the best warfighters, I mean, I, the best warfighters in the world, that also get a lot of experience. Yeah. There's some sort of cross pollination there that happens, and you get you get some scary stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, weaponized drones. That's we're seeing a lot more of those. So basically, civilian civilian grade weaponized drones with basically flying claymores, flying around homemade claymores. We're seeing a lot of those now. Um, and the way they the way they're utilizing uh, drones themselves uh, before uh, an event, a criminal event. So like they're getting some of their. Uh, is getting some of their tactics from something from somewhere you know that's it, it's pretty interesting seeing some of those details and how they're advancing meanwhile on the government side they're patrolling in uniform in marked vehicles in the same way they have been for the past almost 25 years nothing's changed this change the uniform change the logo but the same thing is happening the same they're operating the same way there's Damn. no advance there so so going back a little bit, you were saying that it went kind of from marijuana to cocaine to meth to heroin, heroin laced with fentanyl. Yeah, co co cocaine's always been one of the biggest. Cocaine and marijuana, right? Even poppies as well. Uh, but yeah, the fentanyl, fentanyl and heroin put together to make a solid product to fill the void uh, within the the uh, the basically the prescription opiate epidemic that you you guys went through and there was there was a crackdown on that end so you found all of a sudden you found this giant market where people want still wanted that product yeah. so they filled that void um but it's not just that so the cartels just don't dedicate themselves to moving drugs around they also their local markets make them money uh you know protection rackets uh again one of their biggest money makers uh, outside of drugs is trafficking, human trafficking of all kinds, um, from kids to women to adults. Um, you know, we 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 live in a country, the U.S. We live in a country where people are talking about reparations for slavery when there's actual slavery still yeah. in this country. Um, I'm, you know, California. Very liberal, very you know, interesting politics there. Um, has a governor that has a winery that did not shut down during the COVID epidemic because there is their 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 employees were essential. Yeah, were essentially endangered endangered indentured slaves from Mexico that have to work. Right? No shit. So anybody experienced any salad shortages shortages in the U.S. and California during the COVID epidemic? You wonder where that is? What? It's a bunch of Mexicans working in the fields illegally, but legally. Yeah. And that's that 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 is what ha that's what's happening. That's a form of slavery. It's a clear-cut slavery right now happening in the US. And all these people are put into this country by criminal groups that make a shit ton of money off ransoming that ransom ransoming them uh to their families that are already settled here in the US. So yeah. let's say you want to come to the U.S. and I'm a coyote, I'm a smuggler. I report back to a cartel because I can work if I didn't. Uh, you're going to pay me 
whatever money you can, $5,000 maybe, $8,000, depending on where you want to cross. And how, what type of security you have as far as being able to live in the, uh, being able to successfully cross. Uh, or I can just go the, you know, the weird way. And instead of crossing you physically through the border, uh, to jumping the border, I can find a local like for you that has, that already has paperwork that lives legally in the U.S. Rent his ID, rent his license, rent his car, drive it down to Mexico, pick you up. Act like you're drunk and you can't speak and just passed out in the back seat and, and share the legal, legit paperwork with the uh, guy sitting there in immigration, and, you know, let you pass and then you know, give those IDs back to the guy that rented them out to me. Damn. That's one way. Or I can fly you to Canada and you just walk down. Yeah. That's a, those are a few ways that people get through, but there's a cost to it. Sometimes people can't fill or pay that cost. Some of the people you see in Arizona, New Mexico, those places where you find them in the desert and uh, the coyotes are crossing them, they can't afford that service. So they get, uh, so I'll give you credit, you're gonna have to work in certain field and certain farm for a certain amount of time, uh, or your family that's already settled out there has to pay us basically a ransom for you. Arizona is, a ca is the abduction capital of the US. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Why do they find people, you know, in in, in basically conditions of abduction? Yeah. Right there? Um, you know, human trafficking is a very real thing. It's a very horrible thing. Also, just endangered endangered slavery is an actual thing that's happening right now in the United States while all these people are protesting uh for reparations or for for problems that happened a few, you know, a, a while back. Yeah, things are happening right now. You don't see anybody protesting uh, Governor Newsom and his uh, winery that's open during the COVID epidemic for private events. You don't yeah. see any of that. You know, it's it's uh, as a Mexican, I I see these things, and I'm I, again, I'm, I scratch my head where where the attention goes and what the where the eyes go. Uh, it's one of their biggest money makers. People trafficking into the U.S. is something that feeds the cartel criminal organizations in the U.S just like drugs, but it's one of those things that doesn't get uh, talked about a bunch. When it comes to smuggling uh, immigrants into the U.S., what, what is the, why does everybody want to come here? Is it because because oh. uh, we're supposedly land of the free and they want to live the American dream, or is it because they want to get the fuck out of Mexico and they have no choice to survive but to come over here? Both. Both? Both, uh, and yes. The, 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 when I'll include myself, we believe in the dream. We believe that this country provides an opportunity for people like me that have nothing. And I had nothing when I came here. All I had was, thank God, I had friends. All of them were military guys. Uh, NS, uh, um, NSW member, uh, reservist, Dan Stanfield. He was one of the guys that gave me my first, uh, you know, gave me a lot of help and opportunities to be in the U.S. Um, uh, a bunch of Marines, again, for some reason, I'm surrounded by them, and I thank God for that. Um, but I had nothing, you know, and now I'm sitting here with you, and I have an audience, and I go around the country training people, and I get to make a living off that, and I support, uh, I support my daughter in that way. Um, 
I could not have what I'm ha what I have here back there. And if if I were to, would have to stay back there, I would be dead right now, right? Um, the the vision or the dream of what it is to be an American and what it is to live in the United States is something very real and tangible to people in Mexico. So there's an element of believing in that the land of opportunity, the land of the free, and and also you know and when when I say when I when I when I personally say the land of the brave. It's uh, uh, that bravery comes with uh, safety. I can I can express something like all the things that I'm saying in this interview that would get me shot in the face. Yeah, where I'm from, uh, I could say all these things openly and, and share it with an audience. I can I can do that where I'm from. So that's a very true thing. And again, completely from an outside's perspective, it blows my mind that I can do this here. Um, but a lot of them are free fleeing from. Mexico because of the horrid conditions that are in some places. Not all Mexico is a shithole, as uh, the people up here like to say. There's some places that are amazing, that some places that do have a quality of life that is superior to places that I've been here in the U.S. Uh, you know, like I went to uh, I went to uh, <laughs> I went to Detroit you know, a few months back, and that was pretty shocking as somebody yeah. from the third world. And I'm from TJ, and I said, "Wow, man." <laughs> This is rough, right? Yeah. Uh, I know that. I know not not the whole of the U.S. is Detroit, but but some parts are, right? So I don't judge the whole country for what I see there. The problem is that Mexico does have a rampant problem with this type of stuff, and it's growing, and it's in a lot of places. Uh, traditionally, Guanajuato, the state of Guanajuato, was one of the safest parts of the country. I wanted to retire to Guanajuato when I was older, and now it's one of the most dangerous states in the country. With a rampant drug war going on there over control, um, so yeah, people moving up here. And I could see, again, I talk to people that are going through the process themselves legally. That's another thing. I went through the process legally, and it was not easy. Yeah, and it was long, hard on my on myself and my family, and I feel like I earned it. Some people don't go through that process. And they uh, they live better than me in some ways, right? So that's an interesting, yeah. Uh, con uh, that's an interesting perspective as well. Um, you know, I, I get called a lot of things like uh, you know, tra race trader and all these things. And usually from second or third generation um, uh, Mexican Americans. That's usually who usually gets uh, what I where I get most of the hate from. Uh, none of them have have actually gone through the process themselves. Yeah. So. I speak from pure experience. Uh, there's definitely a promise. There's definitely an attractiveness to moving to the U.S. I would not want to be in any other country. I, I feel like uh, that that's, that's probably the best place to be, and I want to keep it that way. Well, I'm fucking proud to have you here, man. I really am, and uh, like I'm glad you made it out of there, and I'm glad you're here, and and uh, and uh, I fucking know Dan. Yeah, yeah, I know Dan. So we'll have to talk about that. Yeah, Dan we'll and Kelly. To talk about Dan. Dan and Kelly. Offline. I don't know Kelly. Yeah, I'm they're, 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 know they're pretty. They're, they're, they've been pretty helpful with my whole uh, process. That's awesome, man. Um, again, Patriots. Most of the people that have helped me out, contrary to popular belief, a fresh, off the boat immigrant to this country, and all the help that I had was usually from Patriots.
and usually from service members. I don't know why. Maybe it's because of what I did. Maybe it's because of some of the relationships I formed when I was working down there. Uh, but it was, it's been rough, man. It's been rough and it's hard. I'll say this again. The worst enemy of a Mexican is another Mexican. And I've, I've experienced that here several times over with some of the people that are up here or have been up here for a few generations. There's something about our, you know, there's something about us that we just don't, you know, give keep each other a hand for some reason. Doing my own research and kind of looking into how everything's run, it seems like a lot of the sayings and a lot of the, uh, a, a lot of the way business is conducted uh, through the Mexican drug cartels uh, seems to be a model that they may have picked up from the Colombians from, you know, back yeah. in the 80s and 90s. Um, even the sayings you're using, uh, I listened to, uh, I think it was you talk about the cemeteries and how um, how the cemeteries are split. And uh, I mean, that's the exact same fucking thing. You have all the, in Colombia, you have all the, you know, the, uh, the community politicians and and all of police, chief of police buried on one side and on directly across the street is Pablo Escobar's fucking tomb. And uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to me to see like uh, it kind of change like that. And I heard you say uh, that a lot of the uh, cocaine uh, was going uh, actual like growing was going up to Mexico and they also, I know they also pushed a lot down to Bolivia and Peru as well. But <clears throat> with that being said, if the Colombians pushed the cocaine up to Mexico, uh, which seems to be uh, extremely fucking powerful, uh, way more powerful than them, uh, what are the relations like? Uh, right now it's, now it's going the other way. It's so the, the, Colombi the Colombians would come and um, show Mexicans how to do their thing, like back in the 70s and the 80s and probably early 90s. Now it's the other way around. Now there's legit cartel influence in places like Colombia. No like shit. Directly at the source. Like and you can see you can see enforcement and ownership all the way down there. I'm not saying they're replacing all the local uh, organizations, but there's clear influence going the other way. Uh, from origin points to all the way up. So some of the stuff that is being grown or taken outside of Colombia as far as growth, uh, cocaine growth is actually funded and supported by Mexican organizations because they see the potential to move production out of it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're looking for ways to expand and modernize. There's cartel influence in Northern Africa. You know, no in shit's Europe. gone all the way over there, huh? Uh, they, there's a cartel group, that uh, a cartel uh, cell that was captured somewhere in I think Australia or the Indonesia or something, uh, Indonesia. And they were trying to figure out a way to provide a, 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 a source for some of the high-level heroin coming out of that region into back into Mexico and then up into the United States. So they're looking to expand. They're like, a, they're, interna they're international, basically. Uh, but what I see now is uh mexico is taking the lead when all that when, when it comes to all that uh from the origin and the production to the transfer to the transfer to even now in the u.s to the distribution side of it which is that's pretty telling as far as their influence on this side um yeah the 
Pablo Escobar is th- that's the guy. Yeah. You know, you can see you, you see him referenced and you see some of the things he used to do down there being replicated in places like Mexico. Interesting little connection there. Uh, Pablo Escobar was a follower and a very deep, a devoted follower of the uh, the Santo Niño de Atocha. It's a saint. Uh, it's basically an image of G- of a, a child, a child like Jesus, uh, that was venerated in Spain during the Moorish invasion. He was basically the saint of the persecuted. Um, so Pablo Escobar would venerate El Santo Niño de Atocha. When they caught El Chapo Guzman's uh, kid in Sinaloa recently, the past year. And the whole mess happened where they beat the Mexican army. Uh, on his neck, on a scapular, it was a Santo Niño de Atocha. No shit. Right? So overnight, that saint, that saint's uh, stock you know, rose. If you wanted to buy a scapular of a Santo Niño de Atocha in Mexico at that time, hard to find. Like that one, it's like the most sought-after item. So it was a revelation that it worked. A miracle happened. You know, this guy escaped federal custody you know the whole of the Sinaloa cartel came in and just you know defeated the army in a a miraculous event so they fucking love him yeah that's a escobar escobar uh, iconography gets found in cartel houses and safe houses and places like that all the time uh memoirs books pictures tattoos of escobar that, that he was like the guy that they they all modeled themselves after. Now, now we're now we're making our own legend. Our own Mexico's making their own legend, uh, their own um, their own figures like Escobar, with people like El Señor de los Cielos, uh, with, with, with some of the people that were involved in the whole Kiki Camarena uh, uh, situation. That are some of them are still alive and are actually still active out there. Uh, you know, so so that kind of legend continues on in in in, in, in that way. And it's also being propagated by things like Netflix. Yeah. So another thing, interesting thing you kind of think about is, you know, Narcos, the original Narcos made Pablo Escobar even more known. Yeah. I was equated to the movie La Bamba. You remember the movie La Bamba? I didn't, I didn't see that. La Bamba was basically based on this uh, 1950s uh, singer, Mexican-American singer who died in a plane crash, right? Richie Balance. And every, every time I say Richie Balance or La Bamba, everybody remembers Lou Diamond Phillips. They don't remember actually Richie Balance. They remember the movie about the singer, not the singer. And in a lot of ways, uh, people that might have not grown up during the whole uh, um, the whole thing with uh, Pablo Escobar or the whole situation around Pablo Escobar never knew him. All they remember is the Netflix series, right? All they remember is the series Narcos. Um, and it's in there and it's in the youth it's in the music it's in the culture it's in the narco cultura which again it's one of those influential things you want to talk about uh hey when you were a kid you watched gi joe cartoon made you maybe some way convince you to join the military later on in life maybe you saw a movie about some sort of badass military operation or something i don't know uh that might have convinced you to go into that line of work well, now there's not a lot of that, but there's a lot of uh, narcos, narcos Mexico going on right now. Yeah. A lot of kids quoting some of the show. A lot of kids going into the culture, wearing the clothes, wearing some of the regalia. Uh, who's your hero? El Señor de los Cielos. Fuck. Who's your hero? Chapo Guzman. Damn. Yeah. That's a different. It's a different thing. You want to talk about propagating? You know, again, freedom of speech, entertainment, enjoy what you want. Um, 
but let's say tomorrow cartels are declared a terrorist organization. So Netflix would now be showing shows glorifying terror, a terrorist um, network. Wouldn't that blow your mind? You know, but it's a thing, you know, uh, it's, a. Uh, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting influence uh, and transference of Colombian uh, Medellin cartel and and how some of them operated back then how Pablo Escobar turned into this figure and now how that's moved into Mexico and that's turned into another different monster bigger monster bigger yeah. monster I mean it's fucking scary you know I mean uh, even the 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 fact that they've adopted the model where they you know give back. To the community and Hearts make and it minds. seem like they're being generous when hearts and minds. You know, I uh, mean, essentially, all they're doing is getting the populace hooked on the fucking tit, and they're getting free shit. They think they're generous. They fall in love. Life's fucking easy for them, and these guys can do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah, and combine that with the fact that how well funded they are, and then you bring in the training factor and how effective they are. I mean, this fucking. Uh, this well, is going to be impossible to stop. Well, you you talk about and again. Uh, somebody somebody very famous told me once: never read the comment section. Yeah, but I have to sometimes, right? Yeah. So every now and then I get these online operators uh, talking, laughing at some of these cartel guys without any sights on their rifles. Um, like you see a you know see this this AR platforms maybe a Draco little thing like that. And they laugh at it. Oh, like, you know, you live in a gun-free part of America, you know, actual free America. You get to shoot a lot of cool guns and invest in your guns and all that stuff. And you see a lot of people online um, that are influencers and shooting Instagram really fast and you know, all the stuff on their guns. Uh, most of those kids in those videos, cartel videos, without any sights on the rifles, are actually going to drop more people in their lifetime than most of these Instagram shooters. Yeah. Because they live in a live environment. You don't need a lot of precision when you just spray wildly into another group of uh, people that you're fighting. Yeah. Uh, ambushing. Uh, you know, the bad guys pick the time and the place. You know, the, the good guys have to prepare at all times for that reaction. And, and you have to fucking fight with rules. Exactly. Against somebody that has no fucking and rules. He has, and he's going to get a lot more experience in his lifetime, probably. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean to, to glorify them. I don't mean to say that they're better... Uh, that they are something to be respected. But I think if you dehumanize the enemy, I think if you laugh at them or you discount them, you're dead already. Or underestimate them. I don't underestimate anybody. Yeah. Um, I've seen I've seen 12-year-old Sicarios with over four or five skulls on their, you know, on their repertoire as far as the people they've killed. 12 years old? 12-year-old, yeah. 12-year-olds. When it's a 12-year-old kid, is that a choice that that 12-year-old makes? Or is it more like uh, maybe the... Hey, we can't get close to that guy. Uh, you, your little brother, he's cool, right? Yeah, he's fine. Come on, just... Okay. So he's just a product of his environment. So this, I mean... Child soldiers. We talk reminds about... me of Africa. Yeah, we talk, say child soldiers, you immediately think Africa. But you don't think... Yeah. It's right down there. It's like yeah. right across the border. Child soldiers. Yeah. Child sicarios. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also kids at night in Mexico sleeping in their beds, probably eight, nine, 
dreaming of growing up and being in the back of one of those trucks with an AK. Man, that's bad news. Or being the next El Chapo. They talk about the, uh, the, the, the corrosion of the culture. Just like uh, you, Black Lives Matter, uh, defund the police, all these things happening up here. Nobody wants to grow up to be a cop anymore. Yeah. yeah nobody wants to grow up and be a doctor. They want to grow up to be El Chapo. Yeah. You know, they want their next, they want their next Netflix series. They want, uh, they want uh, Sean Penn to fly down there and, you know, be on the cover of Rolling Stone. You know, that's what they want. Um, again, imagine if tomorrow they, they get declared a terrorist organization. Now you have a picture of Sean Penn shaking hands with a terrorist. Yeah. <laughs> like, again, that perspective is all skewed. When it comes to uh, the Sicarios or the Assassins, um, and you mentioned how uh, how religious Mexico is as a country, yeah, uh, with Catholicism and everything like that. Is um, are these guys still religious? I mean, you talk yeah. about the desensitizing too, and so. But, but the 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 the, the, the desensitization I, I shared, those the Zetas, those are different. Those completely different animal, mm-hmm. di- different breed of people, highly educated, trained military those are those are more mechanical it's like us gone bad yeah i mean yeah that's i mean it's if you want to see you know what you could become if you know that's yeah but you see certain elements of religion there but not not like you see in some of the sicarios that are kind of made Uh, what i mean by made is every cartel has their own kind of internal narco culture going on in there Uh, some of them pray to different saints uh, some of them pray to different forbidden saints. Uh, Santa Muerte, the figure of death, uh, that is basically in, that basically imbues them with the power to, or the authority to. You know what? I know you're Catholic, uh, but you're under the protection of me, the the holy saint of death. So every, anything you do under my protection, God's not going to know about it. So you have clear field to do what you need to do. Holy shit! Right. So that's that's like that's the. The, the 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 base of the faith when it comes to Santa Marta. And Santa Marta, like people think Santa Marta is like a Catholic thing. It's old, older than any sort of Catholicism in Mexico. If you kind of look at it, uh, Santa Marta, this figure of a, a skeletal figure with a robe on it, that's what she turned into during the 80s and 90s. Um, but she used to be a skeletal figure with supple breast and a skirt of snakes, two hands like that. She used to be Cuatlicue, the mother goddess of the Aztecs. So if you think about it, the only surviving veneration of Aztec uh, religion still in practice is Santa Muerte. And it's a practice that's, uh, that has faithful within police forces, within the military, within high-level politics, and the Sicarios. That's, that's a lot of them actually venerate her. Uh, when I first started working, a lot of the older guys that I work with prayed to Santa Marta. They took me to a Santa Marta shrine, and we we, we offered a, a, I remember offered her a bottle of uh, a Patron. I was like, "Hey, get a, get a bottle," and I grabbed a cheap cheap ass bottle. You know, I said, "No, nah, no, nah, you need to get her something that you would drink, or else it's not it won't matter, right?" And I was freaking out. You know, I was no. raised Catholic, and I was like, "What the fuck am I doing?" Put it there. And the older guy said, this is something that the other guys pray to in fear. So you need to imbue that fear within you. So wear this scapular 
where use this. I learn about this iconography because it's going to be used against you. So learn it now. Do these guys uh, get ritualistic at all? Like yeah. All, yeah. in Colombia or in Medellin specifically, a lot of the assassins before they go on a hit and how they do a hit uh, nine times out of ten, there is on a fucking moped. Uh, yeah. You know, drive up, stitch you up. Yeah. But they will all go pray at a very specific uh, uh, church. The uh, the significance of the left hand, the significance of the left foot, the significance of of coming out of the ground, out of the grave. Um, there's a, there's a lot of ceremony that goes on in some of the more occult and kind of deeper levels of some of these rituals and some of the both on the police side because a lot of these uh, government organizations that I used to work with and some a lot of the police organizations that I used to work with would take those things and imbue themselves with them. So. I don't know, to equate it like uh, people, uh, snipers in Vietnam, uh, eating locally and dressing locally and smelling locally, that kind of thing. So, you know, people say, Ed, are you like a practitioner of Santa Marta? Because you wear all that, because you, you kind of use some of that regalia yourself. Uh, it's our version of a captured ISIS flag. Mm. So we keep what we, we mm -hmm. keep what we get, basically. Um but some of the rituals that I used to see some of these Ikaria guys do and some of the guys that I work with in the police forces, um, silver was very significant for Santa Muerte, um, probably because it has something to do with Judas or maybe it has something to do with uh, just the availability of silver in northern Mexico and, and a lot of parts of Mexico is a very, very rich silver producing thing. Uh, but you would uh, when you would come into a job, a new job, you would get a, one silver coin like a silver peso, and somebody would lean into you and tell you in your ear, when this job is over, you'll get another one. And the other one will be on your eyes or in your pocket. It's up to you to pick which one, mm. right? So yeah. that's like a ominous momentum moiety yeah. uh, that we would get. <laughs> and when you would uh, get in any sort of leadership position, I was a, the, the, the highest I went was a regional sub-commander. And the only reason, reason I get, didn't get commander was because I was too young. Uh, and I got a silver coin at the start and got that ominous warning. <laughs> and I managed to get the other one and put it in my pocket and just, here, you'll stay. Here, you'll stay. <laughs> um, you know, Sicarios will wear silver. They won't wear gold because they think gold is uh, it attracts too much attention to, from the devil, which is kind of like a, it's a weird, in Mexico, the devil is a different character. It's not like the devil up here, which is in direct conflict with uh, God. Uh, the devil and the, and the devil in Mexico is very much kind of the. It's he's a counterforce, but he's also a tool that God uses to to get people. So if somebody's doing something nefarious out there. He won't want to attract attention of the devil. Although he use the he'll use uh, the icon the iconography and the veneration of Santa Muertes to conceal his acts and to give him authority over life and death, basically. Damn. And that's something outside of the norm. So you see a lot of ritualistic stuff in there. Silver grips on the guns, um, silver uh, skull caps on the boots, silver, silver skull rings, um, uh, silver um, uh, rosaries uh, that, with uh, black stones with skulls on them. You know, there's a lot of iconography out there that could be kind of look at, kind of tell something about the people. That's, I do some classes with law enforcement, kind of familiarizing themselves with that type of stuff that it's not out there. Damn. Well, uh... I think that pretty much covers kind of uh, the 
the structure of the uh, cartels and and uh, and and a lot of that kind of stuff that covers that subject. So uh, let's take another break and then uh, then we'll come back and and wrap things up. Cool. Well, my fires kind of suck. But my gummy bears don't. Head over to vigilancelead.com. Buy yourself a bag of gummy bears. And if your fires suck too, get yourself a Vigilance Elite beanie. Keep those grapes warm. Enjoy the show. All right, Ed. Back from the break again, and uh, we're going to wrap this thing up. But um, I want to cover two things, and uh, the first one being... How do you cope with all the shit that you've seen? We talked about uh, some of the stuff you've seen. We've talked about, uh, you know, the disposing of bodies and some of the gruesome stuff that you've seen the cartel do down there. We covered the fact that you've gone on 2,700 fucking hits. There's no numbers. I mean, I, I, it's yeah. just a blur of years and blurs. I don't know. I don't know how many of those. Well, you know, that, nine uh, years. That whole experience. Uh, Humor is yeah. a big part of it, I think. One of the things I've always recognized with all the people that I meet that have, you know, people like you that have an experience base, uh, other people like that that had kind of went through their own thing. Uh, there's certain commonalities that I see in people like that. Um, humor is one of them. Usually I can tell a lot about somebody if uh, they don't have a sense of humor. You know, they take themselves too seriously. There's, there's something, there's something amiss there. Yeah. Um, Humor is one of those big things that has helped me out. It kind of, it's a good mask. Yeah. It's a good cloaking device, humor. Um, it helps get through the misery when you're in the middle of it, too. I, this, uh, I had this, uh, one of my closest friends when I, we used to, when I was working, his name was Jaramillo. Very infamous name. I've kind of made him famous. Um, it's my way of keeping him alive. Uh, he was one of the older guys that I worked with. He was a mess. I mean, he was a dumpster fire inside of a dumpster fire of a person. But he was very loyal. And he was a very good guy. He gave me some of the biggest laughs in my life, usually unintentional, you know. Um, he, uh, he, he'd always kind of basically, you know, keep me laughing. Um, he, he would push me into going into weird places and kind of getting out of my comfort zone and and just just taking every day as if it's the last one. Um, we went on some weird adventures, including one that included a donkey show, which we won't get into. But uh, <laughs> um, And we would always get uh, shit-faced drunk every time we would uh, come back from something. Yeah. Um, there was a... There's a word that I discovered or learned about up here in the U.S. called PTSD. Um, 
it's not a word that we know down there in Mexico. There's no, there's no concept of a veteran or, or, or a support network for people that go through the experiences that I went through. A lot of people that go through those experiences down there. There's no, there's no talk about that. There's a, there's a sense of machismo. Uh, you, you just take it, you know, it's fine. You know, just don't go crazy. Yeah. So you'd get a few days off, you know, you get, uh, you get to leave and you would go get drunk and come back and you would get asked if you were okay. And he would lie your ass off and say, yes, and just go through with it all. Just go through the motions. Um, Jaramillo was, a, he went through a lot. He went through most of it with me. And every now and then he would go out and, the reason why we got along, we were completely different people, separated from for, by, by almost a decade in age. He had a weird fetish for 80s ranchero music, and he wore boots and, you know, weird. And he would have wore the pearly shirts and stuff like that, and he was into that whole weird cowboy kind of culture. And I was not. Grew up as a skater kid, like punk rock and completely opposite. Uh, but we what we shared is that we didn't take ourselves too seriously. We'd make the fun of ourselves and everything around us, and every time we'd uh, we would go out and you know partake in some uh, festivities and get drunk, uh, we would get, I mean, and we would try and get comatosed. That's what we would aim after. Damn. I don't know. I don't know if there's a there's a X rating uh, on this, but I'll share a small story about him. It's it's a funny one. Let's do it. One of the times we went through a bad situation once and uh, we were celebrating that we were still alive. And we got leave and we got money and we said, you know what? Let's just go out and just get blacked out. <laughs> we went out and got blacked out drunk. Not blacked out. We conscientiously went back home after the whole night uh, alone. We were We were hunting for some sort of female comfort, but we were too much for them. You know, we went back to the house we were renting. We had this house where a lot of us would live, kind of a safe house setting for us. We walked to the door and couldn't open the door. Uh, we wanted to pee. Our meal's like, oh, I gotta pee, I gotta pee. Like, we'll pee over there and I'll pee over here. So I'm standing there really drunk with my handgun, a Glock with a light on it, pointing towards the ground, being, I went out drinking with my gun, by the way. This is Mexico, different country, <laughs> different little sets, right? And I hear Jaramillo say, oh, no, oh, oh. Like, what's wrong, Jaramillo? Oh, something's wrong. Oh, something's wrong. I turn around and point my light at him, you know? Oh, shit. Again, it's different times. Um, and he's he pissed his pants. And I was like, what? What's what? What's up, Armio? There's something wrong. Yeah, you peed your pants. No, 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 there's something wrong. I think my dick is blocked and I have a hole in one of my balls. What? That's exactly what I answered. I think my dick is blocked and I have a hole in one of my balls. I, I didn't understand. Armio, you're not making any sense. So, took the light off my gun closer he pulled one of his balls out to pee holy shit he pulled one of his balls he was so drunk that he pulled one of his balls that's amazing out to pee, and he was worried that his dick was blocked and he had a hole in one of his balls wow. first off i had to explain 
biology to them and, and anatomy <laughs> and physiology. And it was, I laugh, I've never laughed more in my life. How long did it take you to figure that one out? Oh, it was, it was, it was a process. <laughs> it was a process. Let's retrace the steps here. <laughs> He pulled, he pulled he pulled one of his balls out. To, anyway, so I laughed. We la we were, I mean I laughed and he started laughing as well. And we it was a solid hour of us laughing out there um, in the misty uh, morning hours, uh, kind of sobering up with that laughter. And uh, we saw some horrible stuff the night before, and I was medicinal yeah that was a moment uh i was i was remember that moment because it was it was a, it was a form of escapism uh we would you know just get numb uh he was he was he was a, he was he was one of those characters that you know the stories just legendary stories about him um he, he kind of taught me a little bit about that, that laughter part and that humor just not taking myself too seriously uh I think uh probably the the kind of the most scary time or the most dangerous time for people that go through the, those types of experiences is the end mm. the the bus stopping and letting you out yeah while the party is still going on on the bus yeah and you get left on the sidewalk as the bus moves away is a way I don't like to think about it you know, the people that you lived, breathed, ate with, suffered with, bled with, are still on the bus. Yep. And you have to get out of the bus. Um, when everything stopped, when I had to leave the job and all of a sudden being involved, uh, being in the know, uh, being responsible for all these people, uh, them being responsible for me, uh, Having homicide as a as part of your job job description, guns and grenades, smoke grenades there, and just living this life was kind of surreal, but it was the normal. That was my normal for for years. Yeah. All of a sudden, uh, you know, last call. Everybody out. Um, some people stayed on, and uh, you're not a part of it anymore. And everything stops and gets quiet. Yeah. That's probably the most dangerous and closest I've been to ending, I think. Yeah. I think that, that that's that's what a lot of people don't come back from or can't escape from when they when everything stops. That's the I don't know, it's like uh when you're too busy to notice that you got cut or when you're when you're, you know, doing some sort of, you know, maybe you're training jujitsu and you got something really extended somewhere it shouldn't have been, but you're warm so you don't feel it until you stop and then you start realizing how screwed you are physically. And mentally. Yeah. When and you start, mentally. You start, uh, you start counting your wounds. You start uh, realizing how um, all of a sudden the family you had around you and all of you shared the same injuries, maybe all of you saying this, the same outlook in life or the same normalcy, all of a sudden you're taken out from that. And now you have to relate to people that have never been through that, never uh, gone through anything similar to that. And you realize how abnormal you are yeah, and how out of place you are in 
a simple setting as going to a restaurant with your family and trying to figure out what the best place to be is, um, you know, trying to figure out who there is armed or being distracted, not being in the moment. And then basically that being a sacrifice and that being detrimental to your family health. Uh, and all that comes with it. Um, uh, sleep disorder, uh, substance abuse, you know, alcohol, um, drugs for some people, um, not being able to find, not being able to find the right words to explain to somebody, like what, there's no words to explain it to somebody. You know, uh, I think Alan Watts uh, talks about poetry. That's that's what poetry is, putting into words what is unexplainable. Um, I do I do writing a lot of writing, and I try and put into words what I can't explain. And uh, like I couldn't find people that I could you know explain some of this stuff to until I found you know a, a veteran community in, in in California when I was when I moved up there and started doing classes and meeting people that had. Uh, service experience and I started kind of figuring out that I had there's a name for what I had that uh, other people were struggling with going to the store and going into an anxiety or panic attack at at uh, at a uh, at a restaurant because yeah. somebody was doing something that manifested a a moment or yeah. an event in the past um i mean i don't know i don't know how how it's been for you but uh when when some of these things come back into your headspace it's almost like there's no time yeah you're there you're here you're you're both at the, like everything's happening at the same time and people around you don't realize this you know, something horrible you saw, something horrible that happened, and something you see and in the environment triggers it and you're back to you're back there and you're here and you express it through an anxiety attack of an outburst of some sort, um, apathy uh in the relationship you might have be having at the moment with somebody. Um, or you just shut off and you go sleep in a closet for a few weeks. Because that's your safe place. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um I mean, yeah, no, I mean, you just kinda asked like if I went through it, fuck yeah. You know, I went through it. Uh and uh I went through I went to uh therapy for twice a day, almost for three three years. Or uh, not twice a day, twice a week for three years. And uh and uh, you know, I still fucking struggle with it. It gets better, but you know, um it's uh you you got to be willing to invest your time into it and and want to uh, and want to fucking pull yourself out. You know, uh, I had a wake up call <clears throat> and uh, I tried to I tried to kill myself in my car in my fucking garage and uh, I don't even uh, remember it. <clears throat> but to be honest with you, my whole fucking house should have uh, gone up in flames, but uh, for some fucking reason it didn't. Now, I'll ask this question. It's something I, I hear a lot. That's not the easy way out. 
for somebody like you, for somebody like me that tried to be alive and stay alive for that long, that's not an easy exit. No. I get this easy out mentality from some people that don't understand what that is. That's actually going against everything in your being and nature. Yeah. The leave. Um, I've contemplated and thought about and maybe approached that a few times myself. Um, my whole thing is that is completely counter to the nature of what I am and what I became during that whole time where I was trying to figure out ways of surviving. Um, and every time I hear somebody say that they took the easy way out, that's, I don't think that's true for most people that went through some of that stuff. Um, also the honesty and being open to talk about this where I'm from, you talk about what I'm talking about right here. This is the end of your career. Yeah. You are local crazy. You are non-functional. You're not to be trusted. Um, I, I, I write, uh, I write some of these flashbacks down at times. Um, uh, I share them openly. Um, it's a very personal thing to share some of that stuff openly. Yeah. Um, not easy again. Not easy. Uh, it, it helps if you talk about it. It's like I heard from a therapist. It does, but it hurts a lot. It's like peeling off a scab. Yeah. And showing somebody this is what was under that scab. So you can see it. Here you go. Now, forget about the scab. You know, forget about the wound that you just saw. Treat me like a normal person. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. There's a stigma to it. And I think the stigma up here in the U.S. is... I mean, there's more conscience. There's, there's a bit more conscience about it. There's a bit more of a community and support support around it, and that's not that's not that's not something I had when I was going going through that uh, down there. There is now, but there there it hasn't been around around for very fucking long. You know, when yeah. I when I left the uh, when I left the SEAL teams, there was none of that shit, and uh, it was exactly what you were saying. Was it was, was, it, was there a culture of suck it up? Yeah. Fuck yeah, there was. There probably still is. There, there probably I know it's better is. now, but um, and, and and again, I think uh, when you go back and kind of learn, I'm into history and I like uh, reading about uh, other warrior cultures and people that did, you know, things that they had to do. You know, PTSD has always been with us. Yeah, it's always it's it's been. This is the this this what you we talked about your experience. What I'm talking about, we're not talking about anything new. This is the history of the world. Yeah. Um, but I think there's something that happened culturally that separated us from how people used to handle some of these things or how some people would talk about some of these things. Um, uh, from uh, you know, spirit quest as they, they used to kill them or, or finding yourself or you know, going off on these pilgrimages or you know, whatever form they took, uh, ceremony. Um, you know, a, a ceremony is simply uh, an, performing a, an act with a symbology just to convince your subconscious mind of something. So from uh, going to mass and eating a cracker that's supposed to be the body of Jesus and drinking wine that's supposed to be the blood of Jesus, there's a symbology there um, to getting to get it to getting handed a silver coin at the start of a leadership position and getting told that you're going to get another one because you go into it knowing it's going to end. Um, yeah. um, 
I think some of those things are missing in some of uh, our kind of modern way of approaching some of these things. Some of these things have been amputated from us. Uh, we're, we're suffering from a phantom limb syndrome when it comes to uh, some of these things. You know, what happens after? Like I grew up uh, having parties at the cemetery during Day of the Dead. And I, every, I get a weird feeling every time I travel up here and I see empty cemeteries with no people there. It's like a, like a they're forgotten Damn. space. There's no relationship there. Um, I don't know. Um, I think uh, that that whole culture of suck it up, be a man, uh, go through it. I I, I get that. Uh, yeah, it there, worked. It fucking worked. You know, it works when you're in. It works when you're in it. You know, and when, it makes you, you effective. When, when you're off the bus. When you're out, you're fucked. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, yeah, my mom used to say that whole, like I'll quote that, I'll give that quote again. Um, I went through a horrible, a few bad situations, but I think one of the first ones, uh, um, the war that I fought was at home with an enemy that spoke the same language that I did. Every now and then we'd share funerary homes with the enemy. Um, the counter guys were being buried, were being mourned over on that side of the street, and we were having our services for our guys over here. So it was different in that way. Um, they had a very horrible thing happen. Um, very traumatic. I lost a few people, and um, I was covered in blood. My clothing was covered in blood. My sneakers, my socks, feel in my toes. And blood has a tendency to kind of dry out and crust a little bit. Um, I remember I wrote the reports that I had to write and talk to the people that I had to talk. And I was let, you know, told to, to go to the hotel and wash up and come back the second day. I got in the car and drove straight home. Like unconsciously, just drove to my parents' house. I drove probably three hours in the night straight there. I showed up some sometime in the early mornings, and my mom opened the door. And she saw. Yeah. Um, she didn't say anything. She sat me down, took my clothing off, put it in the washer, and made me made me some coffee. She didn't ask anything. Uh, The next morning, I passed out for a bit. And she asked me, like, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go home. She said, there's there's no such thing as going back home, Ed. Uh, either you change on your way back to home, or the home you left changes when you're, when you're gone, and you don't recognize it when you come back. So she told me, uh, going back home is the uh, trains left the station. There's no going back home. So you have to figure out what that looks like for you next. Um, I was very mind altering. Yeah, she was a she. She lived through a lot herself, so she was very wise. Sounds like it. Um, she. Uh, 
She, in, in her own way, she told me to suck it up. Um, I stood, I stood up, and uh, I remember smelling my clothes. They were like downy fresh, you know. Uh, she bagged me a lunch, got in the car. I saw all the missing, missed phone calls on my cell phone. <laughs> People were angry. I went back and faced the music. She told me, "Where'd you go?" So I just needed, I just needed a moment. I got reprimanded for leaving. Damn. <laughs> but you know, it uh, it was a. Uh, I realized that. Um. There was no going back home. So that gave me focus on going straight. Uh, surviving, figuring out what that uh, where that road would lead me. That was aimless. It fucking changes you. Yeah. How um, long did it take for you to realize your mom was fucking right on the money? I'd say um, probably probably a few, a, few, a few days after she passed away. She, she, uh, she, she struggled for a long time with a, with a few issues. Um, and, uh, before she went, she told me to leave that job, leave that thankless job. And that's not, that's no longer the war you should fight. That's not your war anymore. Uh, she passed away and, uh, I did a lot of self-reflection. Again, I got two days off. To mourn my mom. Damn. Um, she got to meet my kid, which I think was that was very soothing to my uh, mourning process. And uh, got everything kind of aligned after that. She passed away, and you know, a few things kind of shifted politically down there, and I had to leave. I kind of she gave me that push at the end. I think I remember. Thinking back to that moment, and I kind of I wrote it down. I've shared that on. I've shared that openly a few times. I remember, um, I remember, and every time I smell that morning coffee, I remember that moment. It kind of brings me back to that weird moment where there's no more innocence. You know, um, you're facing your mom, and you're not. You're not what you were. You know? Yeah. I know that feeling. Sorry to hear that, but, uh, you know, sounds like she was looking out for you, man. Yeah. You know, but, uh, and sounds like she still is <clears throat> after she passed. No, she's, she's always here. Yeah. Uh, and everything I do, she's, uh, she's always been uh, like a big inspiration. It's one of those teachers that you don't recognize as a teacher until they're not there anymore. Uh, uh, one of the things she used to do and push me to was the volunteer work. And, um, you know, we would go and feed some of the, uh, some of the people at, at the Tijuana Canal and heroin addicts. Uh, she gave me, she gave me the eyes to see humanity, even, even at the lowest levels. Um, I remember she had one of the first self-defense classes I gave was through a church group that would work with some of the prostitutes in Tijuana. And that was my mom pushing me to do that. Oh, you know all this cool shit. You think you're think you're some expert and stuff like that. Go teach them. They need it. Um she gave me eyes. Um instead of 
dehumanizing people. I think that's uh, that's one probably one of the biggest things he gave me was the, the human factor. So I can I can relate to people, can talk to people, uh, the, despite that they were trying to kill me. Uh, only a few moments later, yeah, I could sit them down, give them a phone, have them phone maybe a family member to tell them they're okay, give them a cigarette, uh, give them a swig of tequila, and talk to people. Um, that's a that's a powerful armor that she gave me with that, and it's something that I've been using to try and process that whole that whole life that I left behind. Again, the world has ended for me a few times over. Yeah. So, um, part of my process to kind of there is no getting better. There is no healing. There's there's learning how to live with things. Um, there's learning how to how to find a new normal, um, how to find a new center or a new base. That's what I think I'm kind of looking towards. And I've been basically on the road for the past three years trying to find that for myself. I've not found it yet. Uh, was, You're in it, man. What? You're fucking in it <laughs> right now. Well, this is a, this is a, this is a, this is a, we, we all have these moments, right? Where we're trying to figure out where we are in the world what we're supposed to do. Uh, I've, I've been pretty aimless for the past probably two, three years where I'm trying to figure out where I am. Um, I travel on a lot. Every every couple of weeks, I'm in a different state. You know, the whole waking up in a hotel room, figuring out where you are, when you are. Yeah. That, that when you are part, that's pretty interesting. Sometimes I dream, vivid dreams about being back somewhere. Sleeping in a hole or something, um, um, waking up covered in cockroaches or ants because I'm sleeping in a weird field somewhere, um, reaching for a rifle that is no longer there, um, um, hearing Jaramillo telling me that it's almost time to wake up, uh, hearing the radio, uh, sat radio beeping as it's charging in the background. Like tattoos in your mind, uh, you wake up and you're just brought back into here. And uh, driving here, seeing all the green scenery, uh, seeing that all the life around the trees make noise. Everything's green. Everything's good. Everything's you know, alive. You know, and uh, you just, you just take this moment. You're like, what? The, where? How did I get here? Right? Yeah. And why? Right? Um, I think part of the answer to the why is sharing some, some of my experiences with people and having it resonate with some, um, uh, I write these small stories I call fever dreams because that's what they are or like weird flashbacks into a past that I, sometimes I kind of question, you know, it's like, was I, was I really, was I really there? And I write them down. And all of them are basically just an honest uh, expression of something that happened. And I've gotten a lot of people sending messages that uh, I, they thought they were the only ones. They thought that nobody felt like that. Um, they, uh, I gave them the words to describe something that they couldn't. Um, that uh, never being able to go back home quote, I, I remember sharing it with a lot of people kind of responded to it and resonated with a lot of people. Uh, 
I think probably that's probably half of the reasoning why I'm still here, I think. I, there's a story within me that I need to kind of share with people openly. That's and it's been it's very selfish as well because that, that that helps me out with my process, kind of putting some of these things out. Well, just you saying that right there is going to fucking help thousands of people, you know. And uh, it's it's uh, you know the the similar the everything you're describing uh, is uh, like very similar to what I've gone through and what a lot of guys have gone through and it's uh that I've worked with uh or our colleagues you know and and uh it's I mean you're the uh you're the first person I've had on the show that is uh you know that's an immigrant that uh fought a different fought in a completely different fucking war and uh saw a lot of uh we we uh we we've seen a lot of some similar things, you know, and, uh, and, uh, the, the, it's similar. It's extremely similar. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it takes a lot of fucking time. Yeah. You know, it took me a lot of time. Uh, but I mean, fuck man, it just, the guilt don't stop working at it. Yeah. Another thing, the guilt you're here. A lot of people aren't and get that every now and then. Yeah. Like there's people that are very deserving, people that are not assholes, <laughs> people that took care of their bodies that ate healthy. And they're not here anymore. They were with me at some point. They got eaten up by it, and I'm here and I don't take care of myself. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a I'm a, a self-flagellate with a with a, with this guilt whip. Uh, you know, sleepless nights and. Don't take care of myself at times. Uh, there's it's like a common thing I've seen as well with some people. Um that wanting to to keep them alive somehow. Uh maybe by stories, maybe by naming something after them or I know that that's it's a that's another weird part of it. That guilt you feel every day. You could be you could be a green field petting a an alpaca in the middle of this green heavenly field and thinking about somebody that, that you might have lost along the way that might have enjoyed that and you feel guilty about it, you know. Um, I don't know. We, we all process some, some of these things in a, in a different way, but there's a commonality with how I've seen a lot of people that kind of went through the same things that I did on um, how they process it. You know, and, uh, I, was, I, was, I, was, I always dig finding those similarities uh it helps me not feel alone again selfish i know <laughs> and i was gonna catch myself when i start feeling that way but that's it's 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 uh i just talking about it, being around people that uh that know that know the words to that song you know and it is a song it's a song that's old as time you know um I remember sharing this uh, video of this uh, Marine uh, dressed in his dress blues. I think he was a, a Native American. I don't remember the name of his nation. I was dancing with a war drum. I was dancing with a spear in one hand and a, uh, and a shield in the other. And a lot of people were expressing how beautiful that was. 
but I didn't know why. Um, he's singing this. He's singing the war songs of this of his people. He remembers them. He remembers their weapons. He remembers their ancestors. He remembers their names of their ancestors. He is everything that they survived into the point where he's dancing there in front of them. Ed, but he's dancing in the uniform of the nation that conquered his nation. Yeah, but he's alive. And he remembers the songs that went before. He remembers the weapons of their people. Uh, he remembers the culture, the warrior culture. Like He has a, an attachment to that. Can you remember the songs of your ancestors? Can you remember the, the ways that their spears were made? A lot of us suffer from that amputation, that cultural amputation. We don't remember the songs. Uh, and I think you know, the one thing that I always, I, I've always kind of realized recently is that if you don't remember the songs, you make up new ones. And if you see the new guy coming in, you teach him those songs so he can get a semblance of that. Yeah. Remembering the ones that went before. That's the way you keep them alive. And that's the way you keep the new guys alive. Yeah. So um, this helps. The, we don't have drums and we don't have fireplaces, but we do have YouTube. Yeah. Right? Uh, so in that regard, I, I really appreciate you doing these. Thank um, you. This is the drum that a lot of people are going to hear after, after we're gone. Um, yeah. Uh, there's a there's a certain power in keeping some of these uh, conversations alive. Uh, I wish I had some of these conversations at the back of my head when I started, and we didn't. Right? Uh, that's a, I think that's a there's a power in that. I talk to them, you know. I talk to uh, my boys that aren't here anymore, and um, and the guilt, you know. I um. I try to think about if uh, the roles were reversed and I was them and they were alive, would I want them feeling like that, you know, or would I want them to fucking enjoy, like, would I want them to enjoy their life? And, uh, you know, even just the fact, you know, because that's what we're supposed to fucking do. You know, uh, you were just talking about driving here and seeing all the green and the creeks and the animals and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, that's what 99% of the people in this country see every fucking day. You know what I mean? Heaven. Is, yeah, they're happy people. And, and, uh, and, um, you know, with the uh, career paths, like with what we chose, we don't experience that. And, uh, it takes a long time to, to get to a point where you, where it's okay. We can allow yourself yeah. to enjoy. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the people that leave get brighter and younger in our minds. You ever notice that as well? Yeah. Um, I remember some of the people that I lost were older than I was, and somewhere along the lines of my mind's eye, I passed them along the way, and they get younger and brighter. Um, yeah, I, I, I hear I, I I hear them sometimes, specifically Carmel. It's like a weird voice in the back of my head. He's always advising me to do the wrong things, to take one more beer, to enjoy one more song, to ask a girl to dance. <laughs> He's a sadist, you know? yeah. <laughs> he wants that. He wants that. He wants me to a hedonist. He, he wants me to partake in all that. And I think that's probably part of my subconscious that just is telling me to enjoy your life. 
you're allowed to enjoy. Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe it's a Catholic guilt in me, built into me when I was a kid, but, you know, um, there's something about enjoying those moments that you, some of us you know, struggle with that. Every now and then I catch myself in this perfect moment. Um, my kid uh, running around, finding Easter eggs, laughing. This moment of perfect laughter. Um, Ed, why don't you, you know, there's a, it's a weird pain and happiness in that. Uh, not, a, not a lot of people can understand. Well, I'm glad you're feeling it, man. I really am. I got one of those voices too. He's right fucking behind you. That flag up there. But yeah. um you talk about shamanism yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Have you done any have you uh Yeah. I mean it's Mexico. <laughs> we're we're all about it. We have a contact of I come from a culture where we party at the graves like during Day of the Dead. We sleep over in gravesides. We have altars to our dead. That necromancy is part of our culture, which is, you know, weird. I heard from somebody up here in Tennessee once. He asked me if I was a Christian. I told him, yeah, I'm Catholic. Oh, so you're not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, very much a paganistic, a paganistic culture. Um, shamanism is a big part of it. Um, there's a there's these things called veladas. Veladas are basically like uh, they were made famous by a lady, uh, Savina Maria Savina. Like the Beatles would go down to Mexico when they were a lot when they were like a thing, and they would take these mushroom um, trips. Yeah. Midnight mushroom trips. Uh, psilocybin at the core of most of that. Um, I've heard a lot of good things about psilocybin and PTSD? Uh, I mean, I've tried, I've tried the pharmaceutical side of it and it, it, uh, it takes certain things from you when you try and you know, get back to normalcy. So I don't know, I, I mean, I'm sure some people have experienced, uh, taking some of those, uh, some of those, uh, pharmaceutical medications and feel like a zombie. Or feel like you're like on autopilot or yeah it's not you like you're in the back seat of a car driving from the back seat and i don't know i don't know what um some of them have helped uh not all of them um i had a few people recommend psilocybin uh basically mushrooms uh microdosing and macrodosing um but actually having a process before it doesn't it's not just taking them yeah um, shamanism in different places. I mean, you know, they have the, the uh, psilocybin and hallucinogenics have, have have a long history in warrior culture. Like even, well, if you want to talk about Aztecs, like Aztec, some of the Aztec elite warrior castes would uh, would go on hallucinogenic uh, trips before they would go out and do whatever they did, and when they would come back, they would do the same. Um, so I remember. When I 
when I was younger, when I was younger and uh, went through a bunch of bad, horrible stuff. And one of my, my vacation times, I took a trip uh, down to Southern Mexico and went on one of these veladas, like a, so it was a spiritual shaman woman guides you into a velada. It's like a 12, 12 at night, midnight uh, trip with mushrooms. Um, but one of the things she was very clear about was our intention at the start. Are you here to have fun? Are you here to feel funny? Are you here to work out something? Like, what are you here for? And then she would have us write down our intention on a, on a page. And then after that, we would have to physically write that down with our feet in the form of a pattern on the ground. And a lot of us were exhausted because we had to travel on foot on up all this hill. There was always some, some weird symbology throughout the whole experience. Uh, I think uh, the what it takes you towards is a like a clear, honest conversation with yourself. Yeah. Are you by yourself? Yeah, you're with people, but when that hits, you're not with people. <laughs> I haven't yeah. done it. It's I, again, it's one of those things where I don't recommend everybody. I, I think not everybody is meant to do it. Uh, if you have some sort of issues, it might it might wake awaken some things that might be harmful for people. I don't think people should do it recreationally. I think there should be some sort of people that guide you through the process. That's what I've had, and I think it's 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 helped me out tremendously in in uh, figuring figuring and processing some of these things. I don't know. Like, I mean, the best way I can explain it is. Um, when you, it's like a mental fog or, or like a mental cobwebs you might have. And psilocybin kind of takes some of that away from that, uh, that process between having something, uh, something or an event that affected you in a very deep way and just having that event in your head doing circles and actually inserting yourself in that event and trying to figure it out by reconstructing it. Maybe let's say it's like a, it's like a making a play about something that you had to go through. And then as a director going in there and yeah, this could be over here and I should, should have done this over here, but I can't change it. So this is the thing. So I just figured I had to do all this to figure out that I'm in charge of my own well-being, and it's stupid to, to try and force something to change that can't change. Yeah. So some of those processes I kind of went through, uh, psilocybin is a, it's, it, that I think it's a there's a lot of potential there. I I, I don't think it should be illegal. I, I think there's you know there's more horrible stuff out there. The more I hear about it, and the more I read about it, I mean, flaming it hot sounds... flaming hot Cheetos should be illegal, not psilocybin. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think that they do more harm. Uh, it's not a, a it's not a, again. I I don't think it's a recreational thing. Yeah, I think uh, I think our ancestors were, were were onto something with that. I think it's it's probably as older old, as old, as old as we are as a, a species. Um, it does help. It does help. Would um, you recommend it? I would. Absolutely. I would, I would again not recreationally and do it with people that know what they're doing and be very sure about your intentions when you go through it. Um, I don't think. Uh, 
I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's something meant to be done several times. I think it's something you meant, you're meant to be, you're meant to do a few times maybe. And, uh, a lot of us didn't do it at the start to figure ourselves out before we went through the fire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I think if anything, we should do it at the end after we come out of it. Uh, it helps you process. I think there's a medicine in that. That's awesome, man. I've been thinking a lot about it, but um, let's move on. Sure. We've covered a lot of material there, and uh, leaves me with one question: and uh, how do we fucking stop the cartels? Is it even possible? I think there is a. I think it's not it's it, it it's not a Mexican problem. It's a regional problem, so that's the first part of the solution. To recognize that we are not only neighbors intertwined by blood, commerce, criminal organizations. Um, we are a country that is very much linked. We're very much a symbiotic relationship going on, and it's a regional problem. So treating it as anything else than that is a problem. Um, also, um, I've paid taxes up here now, so I can say this. Every single person out there who's an American that pays taxes is paying for the drug war in different ways. Even though you don't know it, a lot of your tax money is going down there and funding companies that make a living off that drug war keeping its status uh, status quo. Um, so as an example, when I was down there, all of my uniforms were bought over that uh, that I would have to wear. Uh, they were all bought bought through a specific uniform tactical company that is American based, which I won't name. Uh, but they make a killing off that uh, drug war. Hmm. All of the vehicles that we ride, ever wonder why every every police corporation down there rides around in a pickup truck? There's a deal. There's a vested interest in there. Uh, Americans need to demand that their representatives account for the money that's being sent down there, outsourcing that drug war, and why things are getting worse instead of better despite that the money and the budget is getting higher. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. The way they're fighting the war is exactly the same way they've been fighting the war since I started. Yeah. So there's something wrong with the whole process there. And it starts, uh, it starts in the U S as far as the fight goes. Um, legalized marijuana federally. Honestly, it's not going to do um, it's not going to do any any difference now. May have done a difference back uh, twenty years back, maybe fifteen years back. But right now, I think we're at a point where cartels have moved on from that substance. So realistically, having that as a schedule on one substance federally it won't make a difference if you legalize it or not. But I'd say legalize it. Um, go after not only the money that is related to that cartel by the money, the money that flows in and out of those organizations and there's ways of going after it. 
Um, that's not my specialty, but I realize that if you give the, the those groups a designation as terrorist, I think the U.S. will have more tools to combat those organizations. Um, and uh, I think finally, there is no fighting the cartels without going into fighting a systemic uh, corruption at high-level politics in Mexico at all levels. Hmm. There is no such thing. You can't go down there and clean out the cartels. And expect everything to go better. There is uh, there is a, a snake with a snake with two heads down there. On one end of the spectrum, there's the cartels, and on the other end of the spectrum is politics. Um, um, these organizations can't subsist down there without sort of some some sort of uh, um, help from the other side of that uh, snake. So. And it doesn't even matter if they're from the right or the left down there. They all, they all, they all respond to money. So any sort of help or any sort of uh, nation building, as you, as, as America calls it, or any sort of uh, offer to help Mexico is always going to be met with resistance, because we don't want um, American interventionism in, in in the country, and all that's going to be pushed forward and pressed forward by the political class down there because it's not in their best interest to get rid of the status quo. So again, the problem is systemic. Yeah. Um, I think there's no solution without solving the problem at, at both of those ends. Um, I do believe that there's going to be a time in a, uh, a time in the near future where the Americans, uh, the American America as a country is going to have its hands forced into a conflict within Mexico. There's going to be some sort of event related to natural resources to foreign influence. Um, I thought that event might have been the massacre in the desert in Sonora, the American women and children, but I don't think that's enough anymore. Um, I think, uh, and that's a sad thing to say, that's not enough yeah. to force action. That's not enough to declare them a terrorist organization. You know, hey, yeah, they're not a terrorist organization. They don't have any clear political motives. From that. Yes, they do. Uh, you want to talk about political killings? Mexico is the cap world capital of political killings. Cartels assassinate political candidates. Cartels assassinate members of the press when they report things that they don't want to be reported. So they clearly have political motives. They clearly are interested in having certain people in certain places power down there. So it's, it is very much an organization that uh, that has that is politicized. They they very much uh, um, work within political uh, structures to further their influence, and they hang people from bridges. Yeah, they cut heads off, they burn people alive, they torture people and put them on videos that then get dispersed on the internet. Um, all the ISIS uh, torture videos and execution videos were inspired by cartel videos that came out before them. So even ISIS is taking pointers from these criminal groups. Yeah. And for some reason, which is probably related to probably the influx of immigrants seeking asylum, now having the legitimate claim of fleeing from a terrorist organization <laughs> into the U.S., um, maybe that has something to do with the, the U.S.'s refusal to name them a terrorist organization. But I think they fit every single description of that, uh, of an organization that is a terrorist organization and more. Um, as far as, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS and stuff like that, 
I don't see any of them operating in uh, multi-million dollar businesses in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, even uh, even if everything, you know, controlling the money and all of that, I mean, the, 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 longer, or, uh, the longer we take to do it, you know, China's right there. And uh, it sounds like they've been there a lot longer than I thought after talking to you. But um, I don't know, you know, uh, it's very, it's, it's very, even with our military, you know, and, uh, and the technology that goes along with it, it's very, it is almost impossible to defeat an enemy that does not play by rules when you are forced to fucking play by rules. Yeah. And until uh, until the general populace decides that uh, it's fucking bad enough that we don't need to play by those rules anymore, uh, in my opinion, it's never gonna fucking go away. So you better get used to it. And I, I, I've, I've, I think the world has witnessed the the power of the U.S. military, and as somebody that's worked down there. And I've seen it up here and have friends and been working that around. I know the U.S. can change that uh, landscape really quickly if they wanted to, if they had the political backing and if they had the ability to do so. It's not going to be easy. This isn't an enemy that lives across the ocean. Yeah. This is this is not an enemy that lives across the ocean. I remember, I've, I've, I've heard conversations about what they would do if a full-scale invasion happen or an armed intervention in Mexico would happen by U.S. military forces and what the cartel's response would be when they would, when they felt threatened. Um, you'd hear, and again, this is by an organization that is not labeled a terrorist organization. Well, if the U.S. Starts, decides to intervene, we'll just randomly poison drug loads going into the U.S. and create a health crisis in this country that you have never seen in your history. Damn. Now imagine that reaction. Um, this is an organization that can take pictures of uh, people going in and out of Coronado. They have access to that, you know, that area. They can take notes and numbers. They can go on social media. They can discover where people live. They can yeah. make you want to go back home really quickly. Yeah. Uh, they can get to you. It's not... Again, this is not an organization that uh, that lives in a, in a cave system somewhere in Afghanistan. These are guys that don't have their own cell phone networks. These are guys that have operate multi-billion-dollar uh, business of, of uh, drug trafficking. These are people that have tunnels underneath the border that could go put anything in there. Uh, it's not uncommon to uh, back in the post uh, 9/11 era. To, that Americans would put Geiger counters in those drug tunnels because they were worried about what could get through. Now imagine somebody is uh, an organization that is not worried about that anymore. Yeah, all they're worried about is retribution. That would be that that that'd be a bad day, I think. Um, it's not as easy as some people make it out to be. Oh, just send a group of just send the military down there and we'll clean everything up. I think it's a. I think it's a. It's a problem that if we if you leave long enough to fester, it's gonna become. It's gonna a, snowball. Oh fuck! It already has. <laughs> and I think. Uh, I think within our within our lifetime, we'll see it. It's gonna be some event on the border. It's gonna be some sort of 
I think it probably and the sad thing is it's probably not going to be even related to American blood spilled and or drugs. That's probably going to be a resource issue. Uh, but we'll see that intervention within our own lifetimes probably. I was saying five years. And I'm still at that five-year mark in my mind. I say five years because of the uh, presidency going on down there and the incompetence. It's uh, it's almost comical incompetence as far as how it's handling the drug, uh, the, the cartel issue and the violence issue, and how it's each year it's just becoming worse and worse. So I don't know. Um, I just know that there's no such thing as a Mexican solution or an American solution. It has to be a regional solution. And uh, um, I'm not expecting the UN to step in at any time soon. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to wrap this thing up. But um, I just want to say, man, I really appreciate you making the trip. And um, your story is fucking amazing, dude. So um, this is going to help a lot of people, especially with that one segment. And, yeah. um, and, uh, and uh, you know... I know it sounds like you're kind of still searching for a purpose, but I'm telling you, man, you're fucking killing it. And uh, you probably are very similar to a lot of my friends and um, you don't reflect on your own success. And, um, you know, but uh, I'm just going to tell you, you're fucking killing it, dude. And uh, you're doing a great job and you're spreading a fucking great message and, and, uh, and you're bringing to awareness to shit that people need to fucking hear about so um you know keep it up keep it up uh, thank you for the reminder sometimes yeah. i need a kick in the ass to keep going <laughs> right on man well thanks for coming thank you It's time to get away in a new Hyundai vehicle during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event at Woodhouse Hyundai. The Hyundai lineup of sedans and SUVs has the capability you need and technology and features you want, like the all-new 2023 Hyundai Palisade and Hyundai Tucson. This holiday season, get into a vehicle that will give you confidence with Hyundai Owner Assurance, America's best 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. Visit us online at woodhousehyundaiofomaha.com. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.